Hello and welcome to a special Sunday edition of Batman Nightcast, a proud part of the Fire and Water podcast network that chronicles the legendary comic book adventures of the Dark Knight Detective. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin, and we've got a board propped up against the door so Rob and Shag can't get in right now. (laughs) I was going to say, there's nothing wrong with your hearing, folks. This is the right show that you've tuned into. We are not the irredeemable Shag and the freewheeling Rob Kelly that you're used to. Uh, Due to some scheduling gymnastics, we are taking over the Sunday spot for this week to bring you a special episode of Batman Nightcast. And we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, as you guys are no doubt aware, the comics community and the Batman community especially lost one of our heavyweight champions, Denny O'Neill. Chris and I talked a little bit about his passing with Rob and Shag on a recent episode of FW Presents. We're going to dive deeper into that subject later on this episode and discuss a pretty great Batman story written by Denny. Also, recently we got a somewhat shocking bit of Batman-related news from Hollywood that has nothing to do with the Matt Reeves Batman film that's in production. Chris, remind our listeners what that trivial bit of information is. Batman returns in the form of (gasps) Michael Keaton? Ooh. Uh, Yeah, so there's there's a lot to talk about there. We'll we'll get back to that one. But um, we're also going to respond to our listener feedback from the last episode of Nightcast to... But before all of that, we need to pause and take a moment to thank our sponsors for this show. This episode of Batman Nightcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Today, we have selected a couple of new books related to our favorite Dark Knight Detective that just came out within the last couple of months. Chris, what did you pick? I picked Tales of the Batman Steve Englehart, and the description goes thusly, In these moody tales from the 1970s, Batman faces his own lonely existence while struggling against one of his earliest foes, Dr. Hugo Strange. This run also includes the renowned Jokerfish storyline, in which the clown prince of crime comes up with his most off-the-wall scheme ever, along with the 2005 miniseries in which the Joker runs for office with the slogan, Vote for me or I'll kill you. <laughs> Collects detective comics. I think I heard that somewhere this year. Uh, you know, uh, no, else it, it, they, they take the or out of it. It's just, vote for me, colon, semicolon, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh, Collects Detective Comics 439 and 469 through 476. Batman number 311. Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number 109 through 111. Legends of the DC Universe 26 through 27. Batman Dark Detective 1 through 6. And a story from Batman Chronicles number 19. It's uh, 456 pages. All these stories are written by Steve Englehart with art by Marshall Rogers. Yay! And Terry Austin. Yay! Walt Simonson, Al Milgram, Irv Novick, Trevor Von Eden, Sal Amendola, Dig Giordano, and more. Normal retail price is $49.99, but you can get it from in-stock trades for 42% off for just $28.99. That's a, that's a pretty good end. I, I mean, it's it's the things that we've been talking about. You know, we've, we've already covered a couple of those books in this story, uh, and we're going to be doing a lot more as we're going through the Rogers and Inglehart run. Yeah. Yeah, it's also it's also got that Night of the Stalker storyline that's drawn by Sal Amendola that's that's usually overlooked and I don't know why in like greatest story collections. So that that's that's a great uh, this is I'm gonna have to pick this book up myself. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good one. I forgot about that story too. Yeah. Uh, for my pick, I went with another one that is uh, concurrent to what we have been talking about: Batman Tales of the Demon hardcover. 
In this new printing of a classic collection, meet one of Batman's most formidable adversaries, the founder of the League of Assassins known as Ra's al Ghul. This volume includes Ra's al Ghul's famous debut in Daughter of the Demon, plus Bruce Wayne goes undercover as Matches Malone to track down the demon's head. Collects Detective Comics 411, 485, and 489 through 490, Batman 232, 235, 240, and 242 through 244, and DC Special Series 15. Reprinting a collection from 1991, but with a new cover that's actually the Neil Adams cover from the Treasury edition. Uh, this issue collects 11 stories for 232 pages. The writer for these stories is Denny O'Neill. The artists include Neil Adams, Don Newton, Michael Golden, Irv Novick, and Bob Brown, with inks by Dick Giordano. The standard retail price, just like the one that Chris mentioned, this hardcover is $49.99, but you can get it from in-stock trades for 42% off. That is $28.99. So, two pretty good values right there, two good books that... Um, are topical to the things to the new direction of Batman Nightcast that we have taken for this year. Yeah, and if you if you bought both of these, don't you get free shipping over fifty dollars or something like that? If you so bought you them could, both together, yeah, you'd be well over fifty. Yeah, yeah. So you could you could get both of these for like less than sixty bucks, and it's that's almost the price for one, especially if you included the shipping somewhere else. So yeah, right. it's a, it's a heck of a bargain, and these are fan. This is like the adjunct to the greatest Batman stories ever told, because honestly, <laughs> these are the greatest Batman stories ever told. So, <laughs> so go buy them. Yeah. <laughs> Read them. Well, we've put so many of these creators on our Mount Rushmore. Our, our Mount Rushmore has to be like an entire range, <laughs> like 20 or 30 mountains, but... <laughs> Uh, we have to thank our other sponsors uh, for this show. This episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. As you can imagine, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows, mostly by Rob, requires a lot of online hosting and other services. Last year, we launched the Patreon to make it easier, and boy, did you folks step up to help us keep the network going. So if you enjoy Batman Nightcast or other podcasts on the Fire and Water Network, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. One of the rewards for being a patron of the Fire and Water Network is getting recognized on the show of your choice. Today, we want to thank David Ace Gutierrez and Gord Tolton for supporting the Sunday shows, and a special all-new thanks to J. David Weeder for supporting Batman Nightcast. Again, please visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. All right. As we've mentioned, and if you're listening to the show, you're probably aware that Denny O'Neill passed away on June 11th, 2020. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, when we were talking to Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland from the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, uh, I think Andy was the one who made it the point that O'Neill would have his own monument. He wouldn't be on the Mount Rushmore. He would have his own monument, his own like solo thing, because of how important he was to Batman. I, I mean, short of Bill Finger, I don't know if you can come up with another writer or editor who has had as much of a a sort of formative and foundational impact on who this character is and, and the legacy and what we think of him. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I don't think you can because, I mean, he wrote just about every, short of Englehart, <laughs> every key story of Batman through the 70s, which was the the formative time of the Batman that we have now. You know, the Batman we have now is definitely still an extension of, of what basically Denny O'Neill under Julius Schwartz brought us. And, and, you know, of course, you know, most often mentioned with Neil Adams, but he wrote a lot of other fantastic stories like 
uh, a lot of the other, you know, the Rachel Gould saga is drawn by Irv Novick, and then the later installments are are drawn by, you know, one off by Michael Golden and several by Don Newton, and then of course there's there's no hope in Crime Alley, which is drawn by just drawn by Dick and inked by Dick Giordano. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's so many. Uh, you know, formative Batman stories there that everybody just, you know, that you immediately think of. Plus, then he was the editor of the titles during its one of its most popular phases, you know, around the time of the Batman movie and coming off of the Dark Knight Returns. And and yes, when we when we cover those comics on the first version of Nightcast, we were a little less than charitable to Denny's uh, organizational skills at time. But he but he did get a hold of it. You yes, know, he, 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 did. he did. And he did focus laser focus in eventually on the bat the the batman of that era and uh and they ran with it and they had a great run there so yeah he didn't necessarily hit a home run on the first pitch it took it took like a few innings or whatever for for the batman books to find their stride under his editorialship but i mean given he was the editor for around 15 years was it or yeah, yeah, it's about fifteen years because he—I think he retired right around two thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're right in one sense. Like when he started writing the books in in the seventies, he kind of re—I don't want to say revolutionized the character, but he he did in a, in a way sort of, and that was very much a reaction to what had been going on with the sixties TV show and the comics before that. Um, he and and that sort of a, a vision of the character that dominated for a long time, and then bringing the books and after the popularity of the movie, adding so many more books to, you know, it wasn't just Batman and detective comics or even the occasional Batman family. He added new titles, new supporting cast members and, and really made, I mean, during his time, I mean, I, I would say Batman became like a quarter of, you know, DC's publishing slate. And <laughs> I, I mean, they, maybe more than 50% of their profit revenue. I, I don't even have those numbers, but yeah, he was just, he was so important. And, I mean, you're you're right. We we talked about it. And we we weren't always the, the you know blowing you know smoke up his dress in the, the early episodes of the show. But if you go back to the third episode of Nightcast, you did your spotlight on O'Neill, and everything you said was true. So I mean, we have been talking about him in one sense since the beginning of this show. And I wanted to kind of go more specifically about my my memories of him. And I also need to correct something that I had said on the FW Presents show we did recently with Rob and Shag. uh, And I talked about the trade paperback for Batman Venom, uh, which was a collection of Legends of the Dark Knight issues 16 through 20. Uh, And the story is about Batman... He he fails to save somebody in the beginning of the story because he's not strong enough, so he, in this sort of weak and fragile state, he takes a steroid to help him boost himself up to, to get stronger, and as it so happens, he becomes addicted to this drug, and it becomes a story about drug addiction, drug withdrawal, and sort of chemical dependency on this thing, which is a story that Denny knew from his own experience, and he knew how to write that. I mentioned that this was one of like the first, you know, Batman stories that I read where I really kind of honed in on the writer. That was an example of my memory being faulty and really playing a trick on me. And I, I'm not sure exactly what, what it was. Cause I, I had that, like that, that trade was one of like the first Batman stories that I read, but it couldn't possibly have been because I checked Mike's Amazing World. And that trade paperback was published the same day as Batman 500 which was the last chapter of Nightfall, mm. which was also when I stopped reading the monthly Batman and Detective books. But like at that point, I had been reading Batman for four or five years, 
And when I got to the end of Nightfall, I was like, okay, I need to ta- I need to step step back. I was like, I-, I see where they're going with this story with the new Azrael Batman, but I'm not as interested. And I just need like a breather. Um, I had been reading the whole Nightfall saga, the first 19 chapters, for at like this breakneck frenetic pace, and I loved it. But when I got to the end, and I was like, oh, this story isn't really over. It's just going to be a new night something night quest. I I needed I needed to step away, so I stopped reading Batman for a couple of years after that. But every once in a while, I would occasionally pick up these other books, usually trade collections or graphic novels or things like this. So Venom wasn't one of the first books I read, but it was one of the books I read in my sort of off years that kept me thinking about Batman, that kept my, up my love, that kept me more or less in my Batman phase, as Shag would say. <laughs> um, and and I remember just like picking this one up off the shelf because it has this very striking uh, cover, and I flipped it over. And there's uh, an excerpt from Denny O'Neill's introduction, and I just remember reading this in the store. In a few simple sentences, nobody ever becomes an addict to ruin his or her life. Addiction always begins with a desire to be better, stronger, smarter, suaver, richer, braver, more. The promise is always of less pain and greater fulfillment, and the promise is always a lie. It's a lesson millions of people are learning, particularly on the streets of our cities, an agonizing, intensely human lesson, and as such is appropriate as the theme of a Batman story, because, despite his flamboyance and epic adventures, Batman is the most human of the great comic book heroes. And I remember reading that, I was just like, wow! Like, I, I've like never heard of somebody, like, describing drug addiction in in terms that are first non-judgmental <laughs> like hmm. like really sort of understanding and and, and humane uh, and again i think that goes back to his, his background you know i mean growing up like with the dare program and, and keeping kids after i was like Here, here's a story that's actually like talking about this from from the perspective of like understanding the human toll and the seductive elements of it and what it is and I just thought, you know, like giving him credit, and and I think that's why I laser focused on who wrote that introduction. Oh, it's the same guy who wrote the story. I've heard Denny O'Neill before, and I I keyed in, and then I sort of backfilled the stories that I had remembered him editing and writing in the greatest Batman stories I've ever told, and and all these other things. So that sort of made him an important figure in my Batman canon. It was actually after I stopped reading the book for a while, and then long after I had stopped reading those monthly books. I eventually read the Nightfall novelization, which was written by Denny O'Neill. To this day, I have still never read all of Night's Quest and any of Night's End in the comic book form. I have those issues. I've never read them. I know how the story plays out because of the novelization. Yeah, I've, that's a. Uh, now I have read all of it. I and I was like you. I mean, I I got to where I'm like I don't know how much more I can suffer with Asbats. I was interested in the uh, the Bruce Wayne part of it, but uh, it kind of started. That started a little bit later. You know, they just they, he was off the stage for for several months completely, and I was suffering through that. And I didn't know if I was going to make it. And then Night's End kind of kicked in. And I really do enjoy Night's End. And although at the time, and I hate to say this because Denny wrote it, I didn't like the ending because I thought it was too passive. Mm. Because I wanted to see Batman kick the shit out of <laughs> Jean-Paul Valli. Uh But uh, that wasn't the point. That was Denny's point was that, you know, this way is wrong. You know, that was the whole thing. And uh, so now looking back, 
much like Venom, honestly, because when I read Venom when it came out, I bought Legends of the Dark Knight every month, and so I, I, you know, I got the issues with Venom. I didn't like the fact that Batman had become a drug addict. You know, I'm like, how can they do this? You know, make Batman a drug addict and stuff. But you know, that that was me as as a kid that. You know, I, 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 the shades of gray in the characters, I, I just, I still didn't, I still didn't think DC heroes should, should have any, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, and that, that was me, you know, that was my hardcore super friends mentality, uh, kicking in there. Um, but, uh, but, you know, now looking back on it and especially knowing that, that Denny struggled with alcoholism, um, and, and, um, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a really, it's a it's a fantastic story, and I still see that that image of when Bruce emerges from the cave, and he's just like lost like fifty pounds of muscle, and he's bearded, and he looks horrible, and I just I, I mean that that iconography still stuck in my brain, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, so very powerful powerful stuff, and like you know that it it took a while for me to you know I was a teenager when those stories come out, so it took a while for me to mature into realizing that no that's that's the that's the more eloquent way to go that's the that's the that's the harder story to write it's easy to write a story where you know batman shows up and 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 kicks ass bats rear end but it's a harder story for batman to actually teach him a lesson you know Mm And 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 O'Neill was was fantastic at that, you know, and, and to and to and to make a commentary on, you know, all these, uh, you know, the the violence and, and the the fan outcries of wanting a Batman that just kills. Why didn't Batman just kill everybody? Why didn't he kill the Joker? Why didn't he, you know, kill all his his enemies? And I, I had to mature a little bit to completely get Denny O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe it was something about just the way that Denny was able to use the language when he was writing uh, the climax for Night's, Night's End, um, when he gets to that moment when he, he forces John Paul to confront his failure that he, he's not as good because he hasn't prepared and he's not ready to, to take on Bruce because Bruce just knows the game so much better. And I think he, he has that line. He's like, you know, like when I was a kid, I fell through this hole, and in a way I've never stopped falling. And then you know something to the effect of it's time we both climb out into the light together. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, and that's a nice callback to the man who falls that mm-hmm. was written by Danny O'Neill in that Secret Origins book that we covered. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great novelization. That's that's one of those cases. Honestly, I do think the novel, you know, because it gets to cut out. You know, he he cuts out the stuff that's unnecessary and to the to the overall story. It's a stronger it's a stronger presentation. Mm-hmm. Um and I haven't read it in in years. I've got the hardcover and uh but that you know might be worth uh worth uh taking off the shelf and, and yeah. giving it a reread, definitely. Yeah, maybe, yeah. And in a way, sort of talking about Denny's use of prose fiction and his uh, is actually a segue for what we're going to be talking about on this episode. Um, we decided to do something a little bit unusual for this one. Uh, we're going to talk about a Denny O'Neill story that appeared in – it was one of the, the DC special series, which I love this weird, wacky collect-all series. Um, in July 1978, DC Comics published a 64-page Batman Spectacular with three brand-new stories of the Cape Crusader. 
this $1 comic was officially DC Special Series number 15, though none of the books in that series, be they reprints or dollar comics, 100-page giants, digests, or treasuries, ever said DC Special Series on the cover. I like that. It's just sort of like this, this secret, secret in-club that they're all part of. Yeah, I know why too. If you if you if you don't mind indulging me for a moment, uh, in the uh, Batman Companion that I'm always referencing uh, from Tomorrow's by Michael Yuri and Michael Cronenberg, uh, Bob Rosakis, who was the editor and writer at DC and and also in the production department, uh, he said the DC Special Series was developed as an umbre- umbrella title for one shots DC wanted to publish, so they wouldn't be charged with Canadian custom charges. Uh, so. It, <laughs> Each each new book they put out would be charged with with heavy duties. So if they created one title and and just filled it with all these one shots, it gave DC a bigger profit margin. So and that's also why they didn't do annuals back then because they huh. would have been charged. So you can bra- blame the Canadians for the <laughs> DC special series. Blame Canada. You know, uh, you can pl- hit cue the South Park. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's why this is this strange little title is is all over the place. And I think there's even isn't there some DC special series titles that are digests? Yes. I, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I there, think were, that- there were four or five digests. I think the last three were treasuries. Um, all of the saga of the Swamp Thing reprints that I've been covering on Midnight, the podcasting hour, were originally in were part of DC Special Series. Uh, there was the Secret Origins one with the the first time Black Canary's origin was retold. It was, yeah, they, yeah, there were some good, they, but there were also like brand new ones with Sergeant Rock and yeah, it was a weird it was a weird series. Yeah, definitely. In, all in, over in the as map. much as it was a series, which really it wasn't a series. It was just this this collection of names, as you mentioned, that they could use to get out of paying an extra fee or an extra duty. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, as we as we said, uh, this one, the Batman Spectacular, the three stories in this issue included one by David V. Reed and Michael Netzer. There was a story called I Now Pronounce You Batman and Wife by Denny O'Neill and Michael Golden, uh, which is included in the Tales of the Batman collection that I plugged at the beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one where Batman is married to Talia by Raish. That sets up the domino effect of Son of the Demon and then inadvertently, I guess, in some ways, Damien, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The third piece is a story called Death Strikes at Midnight and Three, and it is unusual in that this short story is written in prose by Denny O'Neill with accompanying illustrations by Marshall Rogers. This story was reprinted in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told and can be found in The Legends of the Dark Knight by Marshall Rogers' collection. We're going to do something a little different this time rather than synopsize this story. Since we're celebrating the work of Denny O'Neill, I think it matters that you actually hear his words, his language. So we're going to read this story to you, and I hope you enjoy. At eight o'clock, the special prosecutor died. He had just stepped from the humid warmth of the lobby of the Gotham Towers Hotel into the late February chill of West 48th Street and was hurrying toward the limousine at the curb, hunched in his camel's hair overcoat, talking to the man who was accompanying him. I think we finally got the loose mob on the ropes, Bruce, the prosecutor said. I hope so, Bernie, Bruce Wayne replied. At least I'll take your word for it. 
crime is a little out of my line. The prosecutor smiled condescendingly. To put it mildly... Buy you dinner? Wayne asked. Sorry, I've got an important meeting tonight and a bit of homework. The prosecutor stopped, wheezed. His left shoulder sagged and he murmured, Oh, damn. His knees buckled and he collapsed quickly and awkwardly, as though all his joints had been severed at once. His head bounced on the sidewalk before Wayne could catch him. Kneeling, Wayne shouted to the waiting chauffeur, Get a doctor! To the prosecutor, he said, Take it easy, Bernie. Help's on the way. The prosecutor's chest heaved and his eyes darted rapidly, frantically, as though he were desperately searching for something that was impossible to see. His bloodless lips barely moved as he said, Meet blind man. Midnight and three. Safe till then. Where, Bernie? Wayne asked urgently. Where are you going to meet him? The eyes stopped darting and the headlights of a passing taxi shone in them. Wayne stood and for a moment gazed at the corpse of his friend. I'll get him for you, Bernie. Doctor's coming, Mr. Wayne, the chauffeur shouted from the limousine, clutching a small microphone. Pardon me. Wayne said, shivering violently. I've got to get inside. I'm, I'm terribly upset. A minute later, he was in an alley behind the hotel, thrusting his coat, suit, shirt, and shoes into a trash barrel. A careful observer would have noticed that the clothes had been cunningly tailored to disguise Wayne's lithe athletic musculature. He was now clad in a skin-tight costume of black, gray, and synthetic blue fabric which reflected no light. His upper face was concealed by a cowl that subtly altered the contours of his head and a voluminous cape billowed behind him. Against the gloom of the alleyway, he was nearly invisible. He moved to a service entrance, removed a sliver of metal from a compartment in his belt, and applied it to the lock. The door swung open, and he slipped through into a long, low area full of gleaming kitchen equipment. In a corner, next to a high stainless steel vat, a fat man in a white apron sat sipping from a bottle of cooking sherry and scanning a racing form. You! The man looked up and gasped. The Batman! The sherry bottle shattered on the tile floor. Look, the man stammered. Uh, Sure, I maybe cheated a little on the income tax, but with three ex-wives, I got expenses. You can't believe. Ignoring the confession, the Batman said, There was somebody new working the charity backgammon tournament in the main ballroom today. A cook, a waiter, perhaps a busboy. Yeah, that's right. A waiter. Beefy guy. Built like a wrestler. Real surly. Where is he now? The waiters are going off shift. I guess he'd be in the locker room. At the exit, the Batman said, You'll pay the tax money you owe. Yeah, I was going to do it anyway, tomorrow morning, you bet. The Batman was leaning against a wall, arms folded, when the burly waiter emerged from the locker room. Shall we talk? The Batman asked. Instead of chasing him, the cape figure glided to a window, raised it, and climbed onto a fire escape. Within seconds, he was standing on the roof, forty stories above the avenue, silhouetted in the glow of the night-lit city. The waiter emerged onto the roof, panting and wiping his brow on his sleeve, and immediately felt the Batman's hand on his shoulder. Ready for our talk? The waiter jumped back, fumbling in the pocket of his pea jacket. I'll begin, the Batman said. A while ago, you contrived to serve Bernard Sorrel a snack loaded with poison, probably tubacuron chloride in a neutralizing solution to delay the action. Still fumbling, the waiter demanded, How'd you know I was coming up here? Call it instinct. I've watched a lot of cowards run. Coward, huh? The waiter finally produced a blackjack, 20 ounces of leather-covered lead on a spring handle. I'm gonna pound you, baby, pound you to hamburger. The Batman shrugged. Take your best shot. 
The blackjack swung in an arc. Halfway to the Batman's skull, it halted as the Batman caught the waiter's forearm and hooked fingers and squeezed. With an abrupt, startled howl, the waiter dropped his weapon and sank to his knees as the Batman calmly forced the arm downward. Milo Luz hires you to murder Bernard Sorrel. Don't bother to deny it. What proof I haven't got will be easy to get. Okay! The question is, why? The blind man was gonna snitch to Sorrel. When? Sometime late tonight. Where? I don't know. Lewis only paid me to hit Sorrel. The rest of the stuff I got from keeping my ears open. The Batman relaxed his grip and allowed the murderer to rise. You'll surrender yourself to the police. You crazy? Sighing, the Batman thumbed a nerve in the waiter's neck and eased the suddenly unconscious murderer to the tar paper. Twelve miles away, a telephone rang in the hush of an oak-paneled bedroom. Alfred Pennyworth put his dust cloth on the desktop and lifted the receiver. Wayne residence, Alfred Pennyworth, butler speaking. Alfred, is Dick around? No, Master Bruce. He planned to leave for Hudson University directly after viewing a film of Mr. Buster Keaton's at a theater devoted to revivals of cinema classics. A dynamite flick was his description. I confess I am baffled by youthful vernacular. Right. I've could have used his help, but we'll manage without it. See what the computer has on somebody nicknamed the Blind Man. Part of Milo Lou's mob. A moment, sir. Alfred touched a stud at the base of the lamp. A portion of the desk slid back to reveal the keys of a computer terminal, and a row of stately volumes parted to bear a large display screen. Alfred tapped keys, and the screen flashed information. Give, Alfred, the Batman said impatiently. Anthony Toombs, a.k.a. Tony the Tomb, a.k.a. Blind Man Tony, a.k.a. The Blind Man, Alfred read. That's him, the Batman said. Born Rockford, Illinois, 19 July 1927, mother Bertha Toombs, father unknown, awarded scholarship to State College at Billington. Skip the background. Get to his association with Lou's. Entered the employee of Milo Luz approximately 5 November 1967 as accountant. No overt criminal activity noted. Struck by 25 caliber bullet 24 December 1968. Extensive damage to optical nerve resulted in total blindness. Anything on who shot him? Nothing, Master Bruce. Outstanding personal characteristics? Talents? Alfred pushed keys, paused, and read. Subject has total recall. Makes sense. He probably has enough stored in his head to blow Lou's operation apart. And for some reason, that's just what he wants to do. I wonder why. Rigid in his seat, he listened to the sounds. Muffled coughs, the scrape of feet, the rattle of wax paper. Listened and remembered. He had been in the tiny alcove beneath the stairs, the private, hidden place where he liked to sit by himself, away from the crude humor of the others, constantly reminding him of his loss. He recognized the footfalls of Luz, his boss, and Benny, Luz's newly hired bodyguard. You keep that blind guy around for laughs, huh? Benny speaking, causing a sharp pang in the listener. Now, no, Benjamin, our Anthony is quite useful. Milo Luz. The footfalls stopped. Snick of lighter, odor of tobacco. How's that? He learns things, instantly and totally. With his memory available, I need not worry about records, names and numbers written on paper, and what is not recorded cannot be used as evidence against me. Neat, Benny was admiring. 
Guess he has the memory because he was born blind, huh? Once more, you're mistaken, Benjamin. He was injured by a bullet. Then Milo Luz chuckled and spoke the words that gave focus to ten years of rage and pain and hate. He said, What our Anthony doesn't know is that I fired the bullet. I was a bit tipsy. This was Christmas Eve, and I was playing with a gift from a dear friend of mine, a twenty-five caliber llama automatic. I didn't realize the little devil was loaded until it discharged and hit Anthony, who was sleeping in the next room. Pulled his shades permanently. He never guessed, huh? He never will. One of Anthony's lovelier traits is trust. Game of pool, Benjamin? Sure, Mr. Luz. For an hour, he had sat and mentally reviewed the agonies and humiliations he had suffered for the past decade. Then, he had crept from his refuge to the telephone and asked the operator for the special prosecutor's number. Commissioner Gordon to collect Sorrel's killer from the roof of the towers. The Batman was telling Alfred. He shouldn't have much trouble wringing a confession from him. Indeed. His spirit is broken, I presume? Badly bent. I didn't have time to give him the full treatment. Luz isn't the type to take chances. He won't be content with eliminating Bernie Sorrel. I'll have guns looking for the blind man, too. I've got to reach him first. Good luck, Master Bruce. The Batman stepped from the booth and glanced upward at the digital clock atop the arch building. 9.02. At 12.03, midnight and 3, the blind man would leave his haven, wherever it was, and become the prey of Luz hunters. The Batman had precisely three hours and one minute to find him. Where would a blind man hide? Where could he be? The Batman decided to ask Milo Luz. Interesting news, Luz said, and eight ball in the side pocket. He bent low over the felt-covered table and twitched his cue stick, sending the white ball into the black ball and the black ball into the corner pocket. Milo Luz grinned and turned to his bodyguard. That's $90 you owe me, Benjamin. Now, repeat for me, please. What did Boilerplate say? That him and the gimp spotted the blind man, and in a couple of hours it'll be cool to snuff him. Ah. Luz chalked his stick and fastidiously flicked chalk dust from the velvet collar of his Japanese silk dressing gown. And where has our Anthony been secreting himself? Boilerplate didn't say. You didn't inquire? Benjamin, has anyone ever informed you that your intelligence is limited? Benny pouted. My neighborhood where I grew up, you didn't have to be smart, only tough. Or sneaky and mean. Luz and Benny whirled as the Batman strode from behind heavy crimson drapes. Good evening, gentlemen. Luz brushed a lock of ginger-colored hair from his forehead and bowed slightly. Ah, the gallant our smarmier tabloids refer to as the caped crusader. You circumvented our alarm system? Alarms? Those? No. Toys, Milo. You should invest in some decent equipment. I shall. And pay for it with the income from the filth you put in the veins of the helpless. I prefer to think of my product as a respite from woe. Can I offer you a refreshment? I have an excellent brandy sent me by a dear friend in the cognac region of France. No thanks. I'm afraid there might be something other than brandy in it. Tabacurane chloride, for instance. Poison you in my own home? No, dear me, that would be tacky. Let's cut the repartee, Milo. Your conversation gives me a slimy feeling in the pit of my stomach. And besides, we're boring Benny there. He's itching to grab for the 9mm browning in the Burns Martin spring holster under his jacket. Benny gaped. It had to be a guess. Close observation, Benny. 
plus a knowledge of the habits of the insect population. Lou snickered. I do believe you've been insulted, Benjamin. Benny had been practicing. Benny was fast. The sleek blue pistol seemed to appear in his fist from nowhere, rising, aiming. By contrast, the Batman seemed to be moving in slow motion. He wafted into the air like a leaf being borne aloft on a gentle breeze, his long body pivoting on fingertips that barely touched the table. Yet before Benny could squeeze the trigger, the Batman's heels drove into his solar plexus. Benny rose on his toes and his jaw sagged, and his skin darkened to an ashen hue, and he gulped like a beached guppy. As the Batman completed his leap, Benny was falling to the thick Persian rug. Splendid! Lewis was slapping his palms together. Mikhail Barishnikov has a peer. You missed your calling. You should have been a ballet dancer. You might as well talk, Milo. You're finished. The punk you hired to kill Sorrel will sing, and you'll stand trial for murder. If you help me save the blind man, maybe the jury will take it into consideration. You do underestimate me, my agile detective. When the police search the villain who slew the late lamented special prosecutor, they'll find a document sewn in the lining of his coat, a letter commissioning him to perform the vile deed. The letter is signed by my rival, Al Burke, the notorious drug merchant. Actually, neither Al nor the villain has any knowledge of it, but we can't expect the officers to doubt such overwhelming evidence, can we? You expected the punk to get caught? Rather, I anticipated every eventuality and took the precautions indicated. Luz crossed a teak sideboard and spilled wine from a decanter into a stemmed crystal glass. Do not be distressed, dear Manhunter. Your performance has been extraordinary, but you are used to dealing with hoodlums. I am a genius. Are you aware that I graduated magna cum laude from the Sorbonne? Luz sipped and smacked his lips appreciatively. Excellent. Chateau de Pop 68. Superior vintage. I'll bet a dear friend sends it to you. Indeed. I perceive in you a person of wit and sensibility. Why don't you abandon your hopeless quest for the doomed Tony? Remove your ridiculous mask and enjoy my company. You are intelligent, Milo. And educated. And so refined you can give etiquette lessons to a princess. But along with the refinement, you're sick and twisted and callous as a viper. In some societies, they lock your kind in the cellar. Wine slopped onto the cuff of Lou's dressing gown, and he spoke through clenched teeth. You dare to assume an attitude of superiority, you strutting, preening idiot. Tomorrow, Tony will be meat on a slab, and you will suffer the knowledge of your failure. Where is he? The Batman asked quietly. I honestly don't know. Somewhere in Gotham City, I imagine. Luz gestured to the Ormolu clock on the mantel. It is eleven. You have an hour to find him. Milo, drink your wine. Savor it. Then put your affairs in order and call your dear friends and tell them goodbye. Tell them your next address will be a prison or a grave because, hear me, Milo, I will find the blind man and I'll return and I'll destroy you. I'll watch you whimper and beg and crawl. A cold wind fluttered the crimson drapes, and the Batman was gone. Somewhere in Gotham City, it is a monster sprawled along 25 miles of eastern seaboard, stirring and seething and ever restless. 
8 million human beings live on streets that, if laid end-to-end, would stretch all the way to Tokyo, crammed into thousands of neighborhoods, from the fire-gutted tenements of Chancerville, where rats nestle in babies' bedclothes and grandmothers forage in garbage cans, to the penthouses of Manor Row, where the cost of a single meal served by liveried servants would support an immigrant family for a year. It is countless chambers and crannies and corners in bars, boats, houses, hotels, elevators, offices, theaters, shacks, tunnels, depots, shops, factories, restaurants, newsstands, hospitals, junkyards, cemeteries, buses, cars, trains, trams, bridges, docks, sewers, parks, jails, mortuaries, the shelters of living and dead, millionaires and bums, fiends and saints. Napoleon's armies could search for a lifetime and leave places unseen. An exceptionally energetic investigator could visit the likely ones in a month. The Batman had less than 60 minutes. Wrapped in his cape, oblivious to the mocking echoes of distant traffic and the pale fingers of mist rising from the river, he permitted his being to flow outward to probe the fibers of the monster. He knew that two gunmen had located the blind man, probably by accident. Two rootless mercenaries, hungry for Saturday night pleasure, would seek the smoky haunts of the city center. It was there, then, that they had glimpsed their quarry. And a blind man would not be able to stray far from the city's ugly heart, not if he planned to meet someone at a prearranged time. He would fear everyone and everything, insist the meeting be away from the spies who had infiltrated the palaces of the law, insist on neutral territory. He would go where his enemies would not expect him to be. He would cower in darkness, hoping to use it to his advantage. A darkness that would vanish at midnight and three. Of course, the answer was obvious. As he sprinted toward his gaudy destination, it is possible the Batman silently thanked Alfred Pennyworth for mentioning a silent movie. Boilerplate Thomas stuffed the final morsel of a mustard and sauerkraut smeared hot dog in his mouth, belched, and contemplated the passers-by. A lurching sailor singing about a mermaid and a can opener, a dwarf in a plaid zoot suit smoking a hookah, a wizened woman burdened with a pair of bulging shopping bags screaming, Commies! Sissies! Agronomists! He nudged his companion. Hey, Gimper baby, let's say we hit the blind man and grab a bite. I'm in a mood for oysters. Gimp Malone consulted his wristwatch. Midnight. Might as well go inside. They emerged from the doorway entrance and joined the passing throng. The action on this particular block in Midtown Gotham was becoming frantic. Those who had not located the thrills they sought were desperate, and those who had were trying to conceal their disappointment. Laughter was shrill. Motion was jerky. Splotches of neon created an aura of garish unreality. Boilerplate and Gimp sauntered across the street, Boilerplate waddling like an oversized penguin, Gimp hobbling like a lame rabbit, and approached the Olympic Theater. Boilerplate squinted at the marquee, laboriously reading aloud, Buster Keaton in The General. War pitcher? he asked Gimp. Could be. The box office was deserted, and the ticket taker had abandoned his post. Boilerplate and Gimp entered the Olympic and sat in the last row. There were a dozen patrons left, of whom five were snoring. You spot him, Gimp. Nah, but I will when the lights go up. Check your heat. They produced identical Colt 44 Magnums, dangled them between their knees, and spun the cylinders. 
Satisfied, they put the revolvers in their laps and gazed at the flickering images on the screen. How come they ain't talking? Boilerplate demanded, offended. Not so loud, stupid. Well, how come? This is a silent picture, is how come. Something new? It'll never catch on. The blind man hunkered down in his seat. They were directly behind him, Thomas and Malone, freelance killers Milo used when he didn't want to involve his organization in a dirty job. It couldn't be coincidence. They were here to kill him. His throat dried, a nerve in his cheek twitched, his temples throbbed. Could he sneak by them, reach the exit unobserved? No. The rap of his cane would alert them, or he'd stumble, and the searing lead from their guns would rip his flesh. He tried to remember a prayer. Hiya, Tony. The blind man felt warm breath on his neck and smelled mustard and sauerkraut, and sweat stung the corners of his sightless eyes. We've been waiting, Tony, Gimp Malone said. Waiting till there ain't no crowds and no cops. Show's over, Tony. This was Boilerplate Thomas. You didn't notice. What you're gonna do, Tony, is you're gonna go where we lead you, real quiet and peaceful. Helpless, the blind man allowed himself to be nudged forward. He lost all sense of direction, but he realized they were urging him to the front of the theater, to the vacant area at the rear of the screen. I got savings, he said. I can pay. Swell, Thomas said. You can buy yourself a nice funeral. Later, Anthony Toombs would wonder if it was an hallucination, an illusion fomented by his immense fear and the startling, unexpected hope of salvation. Illusion or not, however, he would cherish those few moments of violence the rest of his days, would remain almost convinced that at twelve and three his personal darkness had been briefly lifted, and he had seen the Batman, stark and implacable against the expanse of white, a grim figure congealing from the shadows. Looking for a target, gentlemen? He asked pleasantly. I volunteer. Thomas and Malone jerked up their colts, and orange and blue flame gouted from the barrels. The screen shook, and two holes puckered its gleaming surface, but the Batman remained untouched. As he had congealed, now he seemingly dissolved. Unseen, he called, Sloppy shooting. Panicked, Thomas and Malone fired in every direction, again and again and again. A sprinkling of plaster dust fell from the ceiling. The roar of gunfire faded, and there was silence. We got him, Gimp Malone said. The blind man knew he was wrong. The blind man could see the Batman's fist pitch Malone into the aisle where he lay like refuse. Then the Batman faced boilerplate Thomas. Thomas started to raise the colt. You could conceivably succeed, the Batman said. If you're quick, and if your gun isn't empty, you might be able to nail me before I stuff it in your ear. And the blind man saw Thomas extend the weapon to the Batman, but first... The familiar darkness gathered in his sight, and he was comforted. Although everything had gone sour, Milo Lewis wasn't blaming himself. No genius was infallible. Caesar, Alexander, Rommel, each had suffered defeats that ultimately served to emphasize his many victories. The cunning and brilliance of Milo Lewis would be toasted in the salons of the Conoscenti. Of this he had no doubt. True, his organization was ruined. His spy at police headquarters had described how the craven blind man had blurted every detail, and Milo was certain that uniformed brutes were already descending upon his laboratories and supply points, possibly even his home. They would find him absent. 
Eventually, they would learn that he was in a country with no extradition treaty, living comfortably on funds from his secret Swiss bank account. Perhaps he would send the Batman a postcard inviting him for a visit. Yes, that would be a delicious touch. The aircraft awaited in a low pool of fog on the asphalt runway, its cockpit gleaming in the slanting rays of the dawning sun. Otherwise, this small private airfield was empty. Excellent. Lewis waved at Benny in the departing Rolls-Royce and climbed into the plane. He stowed his overnight bag in the luggage rack, settled into the cushioned chair, and switched on the intercom. I'm ready, he said, into the wild blue yonder. The prison or the grave, Milo. Milo Luz recognized the voice coming from the speaker and considered bolting through the escape hatch, or charging the pilot's compartment, or drawing his llama automatic. But he did none of these things. Instead, he struggled to control an urge to whimper, to beg, to crawl. Before we jump in the story, I got to say this, this is the first comic book I actually remember buying off the stands. I mean, or having bought for me. I, I actually do remember like asking my sister to see if my mom will buy this for me because we were at Eastside Pharmacy up the street from my house. And I think we were looking through the comics and she went, ran over to my mom who was going, you know, at the cash register and she slipped it into what my mom was <laughs> was buying and of course my mom never said no to me so she bought it but uh as as cindy cindy likes to point out but yeah so i remember i remember buying that story i mean buying this comic like right then when it came out and you know the the prose story of course i couldn't read i was three and a half uh but um yeah yeah michael bailey i was three and a half uh you know (laughs) I started off this this whole segment just talking about how I couldn't remember what year I read the Venom trade. Like I, I, my memory was I read it five years before it was actually published. And you guys are like, no, I remember the comics that I read when I was four. It's like, god damn, you guys suck. I didn't start reading comics until I was like fourth grade. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I I know I remember buying it, and then I and then then through the years, I've I've still got my dog-eared copy that's missing, like the cover and the first several pages, you know, uh, first several spreads. So in the back, first first pages and back pages. Uh, so I, I'm actually missing uh, in that copy the last few pages of this um, story. But uh, I, you know, I didn't know what to, to make heads or tails of it, but. You know, I got a I got a nicer copy sometime in the late '80s, and then I got it signed by Marshall Rogers when I met him in in 1991. So th- that was thrilling, yeah. So, but I, I love how you know on the back of this they promote th- there's something new, something bold, a Batman story in prose and pictures that strikes at midnight and three by Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers, which the creators never got their names on the books on the covers. Back then, that was very unusual. So that tells you where Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers were. And it is such a different type of story. I mean, there were text pieces in in comics back in the Golden Age because, again, to if they had a text piece in the comic, they didn't have to pay certain fees. So we're back to that same kind of taxes and duties thing again. Um, that's why Golden Age comics had text pieces and things, but and they would usually have like one spot illustration. Stan Lee's first Captain America story is a is a text story with like a with a few spot illustrations. Yeah, his yeah, first, you're right, his, yeah. his first comic book story is a Captain America story, but 
you know, this is totally this is this is in that vein, but but very different. And I mean, you get the idea, like we said, you get the idea of O'Neill's turn of phrase and you get spot illustrations. But as much as I love Marshall Rogers and the arts, fantastic. You honestly don't even need them because (laughs) then he paints a hell of a picture just with his words. Boy, am I glad you said that because I really thought <laughs> one of the first notes that I had was I, I thought was going to be so controversial you would want to end this this partnership. And I was going to say I love Marshall Rogers. You know I do. I, he's he's on my mountain range of Rushmores. No, no, he is he is one of my favorite Batman artists. But when I got to the when I was reading the story, I thought this story would be better with less art. Hmm. As an experiment, I'm I'm kind of curious, like what what the inspiration for this is, where where they decided to go. Because on the one hand, I think they went for this weird middle ground, and I don't think it's as great as it could have been. I think on one hand, you're right. I I think the prose, the text conveys everything that the illustrations do. I don't think the art enhances a lot of what Denny is conveying in the words, with a few exceptions. There are a few, like the the opening page, like the the final splash page. Um, there are a couple of like you know more of the splashy, more atmospheric images in the middle that kind of capture the Gotham scene and everything. I love those pages, and we'll talk a little bit more about them. But I think when Rogers is doing the panels, the smaller panels to convey the action, I don't think it's actually helping the story any. And my thinking was, I would rather if the if he just let the story breathe. And more like a magazine or something, maybe just had like a half-page image every two pages of text or something like that. And maybe mm. they needed to pad it out to, to get a certain page length. I don't know what the, what the reasoning was. But I, think, I was like, this could have been better without as much art and just let the words do the job. Conversely, yeah. I also think nothing about this story in terms of plot or characterization had to be a prose piece. This could have been written as a normal comic book. Like, mm-hmm. it could have just been a Denny O'Neill martial art normal comic and, like, have the entire thing illustrated with the dialogue the same, just broken up into the word bu- balloons and things like that. Like, with only, like, a few specific captions that I think O'Neill really, really do- drives home, I, was like, I think this story could have been great as a normal one-off comic or as just a short story with maybe five illustrations total. But instead, they went with this weird middle ground where there's like 56 panels in this in this 50, 15 page story. Now, some of those are like razor thin because you know Rogers was trying to capture the movement of the blackjack or something like that, and and he's doing all of like these really little thin panels and everything. But it still it creates some panels have like really kind of blocked out like panels for the captions as if uh, for the text, and it's I don't know I I just think. The format, the layout of this story is interesting, but I don't think it's as effective as it could have been. So what do you what do you think? Well, I know that Rogers, again, in that Batman companion book, there, there's a section. There's a little uh, sidebar about this particular comic, mm-hmm. uh, and this is in Michael Cronenberg's section. But uh, in the comic journal number 54, Rogers revealed he wasn't crazy about the final result. He said – He'd laid the art uh, around text pieces that he was told this is how they're going to be used. Here's the here's the font. Here's the font size. Here's the you know here's the the uh, the layout. This is this is the way that it's going to be laid on in the page. So he drew his artwork 
around it. But then the production department decided that the font size was too small, so they had to change some aspects of it. I don't know if they re if they moved his art around. Uh, it sounded like they did. The text was reflowed some of it to following pages, so it didn't quite match up to what Rogers had drawn for that particular page. So he wasn't real crazy about the the final result either. But I do agree that. And don't get me wrong, I love any amount of Marshall Rogers Batman we can get, I will take. But for presentation purposes, I think if you just left the larger key images um, and flowed the text around those, I think it would be a bit stronger. You know, I, I do, but I do think, I think my understanding is, I guess this was Julia Schwartz's idea because O'Neill said that he handed in the script in just prose. He didn't use write a normal comic sc- uh, script that, um, you know, gave descriptors for the artist to draw, you know, in addition to the captions and everything. So he did not, he wrote it in pure prose and turned it in knowing that it would be a prose story. So I guess that was, was Schwartz's idea. And then he handed, and O'Neill didn't know who, how, he, what he was going to do with it really. Hmm. And, and he gave it to Rogers to, to, uh, you know, put these illustrations in, and I think it was probably because there were some, you know, there were some independent graphic novels being published around this time, and and you know, I think the the European graphic novels were starting to get noticed by uh, you know U.S. comic creators, and and I think there was probably this was one of the first mature prestige type uh, projects. We're, we're on the bubble of the eighties when the, the actual graphic novel became a thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think this is DC dipping their toe into that and they're playing it safe by, you know, well, we want the pros and the, the pictures together to make it more of a, you know, more of a legit, uh, you know, artistic uh, experiment. But at the same time, we've, we've got a, We've got to hedge our bets and, and put quite a bit of art in it. So <laughs> that's why you get all these tiny microscopic panels, which I feel are much easier to read in the original printing of the book. Um, the the greatest Batman stories ever told, and I think you said the Marshall Rogers um, uh, Tales of the Batman volume is uh, colored by Bill Ray. And Bill Ray's a fantastic artist and colorist and animator. Uh, he worked in animation, particularly. I'm thinking of Ren and Stimpy. He was big on on uh, uh, in Ren and Stimpy, but I, I think some of the colors that he chooses mutes the the tiny artwork and and kind of and kind of makes it harder to read, even harder to read than it than it would be. I think so uh, too. Yeah, because I, I know I sent you the the scans of the original, and and I I don't know. There's a for, unfortunately no credit for the colorist on the original version uh, now Corey adams who was neil adams then wife she colored the other two stories in the book hmm. uh so i don't know if it was her or like you suggested maybe marshall himself because we know he did some coloring as well mm-hmm. but uh, i do think it's i think i think the experiment works better in the original version than it does in the reprint and i don't know what it's if it's been recolored and reprinted uh, you know, again, but it's the the Bill Ray version's a little. It, it's pretty to look at, but it's also a little hard to read. I, it, yeah, it is sometimes, and I think actually it gets it gets worse. Like the version that's on the um, 
the Marshall Rogers hardcover, which I think is like the fully digitized version or whatever, it still has the same artistic credit, but there are some differences between that and the, uh, the greatest Batman stories ever told version. And it's just darker. There are some panels where I don't know what I'm looking at. Hmm. Like, like, especially like, you know, like some of the, the smaller panels and everything with the action and the panels with the, um, uh, in in like the theater and everything like that, where it's just dark and muddy, and it's and I'm looking at, I was like, how come, how come the version that was printed in 1978 looks ten times better than the version that was printed 30 years later? But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Somebody needs to go. DC needs to go back and scan those pages and just and just clean up the yellow the yellow pages or something. Yeah. White out the yellow. <laughs> but but if you go to the page um, with. Gimp and Boilerplate in the movie theater. Um, it's got like the Buster Keaton like poster and everything. Like I would look at that and I would say, yeah, that like that that I think supports Marshall Rogers' idea that he he laid that one out a different way and like the font changes is different, like, kind of like throws off the way. Because I mean, just look at how blocky and weird the text pieces are. Like the there's they actually have to like cut out part of the the movie theater background. Um, in the panel, in the in the art, in order to make way for two more lines of dialogue and stuff like that, and then like the 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 flow the the of the text from one column to the next, and then there's a break, and then it's again on two columns below that. It's just it's it's not laid out really well, and that that I would think like Rogers would have a better understanding of that, and then somebody in the production changed it, and that just made it look ugh. Yeah, I think the production department really let him down. Uh, let it let the experiment down. Although I do think it's funny. I should mention here since you mentioned that panel that either Boilerplate or Gimp looks like Hugo Strange. I don't know. <laughs> it's a bald guy with an Amish beard. He doesn't have glasses, but and then in front of him there's a guy with a big fedora that looks could very well easily be the Joker uh sitting in front of them in the a few rows in front of them in the theater so i don't know if that's rogers being you know being cheeky about his batman run or you know it's just a coincidence but it sure looks like he's kind of throwing in his greatest hits right here and this is just a few months after he drew both those stories but still <laughs> take your damn <laughs> hat off you're in a movie theater <laughs> exactly at least he didn't have a cell phone back then right but show some, uh <laughs> show some respect yeah <laughs> but no i think you know you know, getting back, you know, production, uh, you know, problems aside, I, I really do think that O'Neill, you know, there's so many vivid pictures you see in your in your mind from from just his his text. And I, I love the description of how he describes Bruce's attire. A casual observer would have would have noticed the clothes had been cunningly tailored to disguise Wayne's lithe, athletic musculature. Mm-hmm. And I mean that that with just a few words, you're like, oh, that's a whole new wrinkle to uh, to Bruce Wayne that he's basically hiding his build. You know, kind of kind of like Clark Kent. But you don't usually hear that about Bruce Wayne. You know, and then and then how he describes Batman's uniform. He was now clad in a skin-tight costume, black, gray, and blue synthetic fabric, which reflected no light. His upper face was concealed by a cow that subtly altered the contours of his head, and a voluminous cape billowed behind him. I mean, just with a few words, he says, okay, the costume, one, it's got black and blue in it, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a cool angle, and it reflects no light. And then the cow changes the shape of his, subtly changes the shape of his head so you don't recognize him as as Bruce Wayne, which I kind of think the cow that Christian Bale wore in Batman Begins kind of did that. I mean, mm-hmm. 
it kind of shoved his face forward a little bit and it kind of gave him a little bit of a chubby cheek look in some <laughs> in some angles but he didn't look like Christian Bale you know right. it, it it didn't look like the same guy in that cow so you know I, I like that I mean that's I mean you know and nobody had really given that much thought to how Batman's costume worked at this point you know this is almost could read like as a as a script for a, a Batman movie or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'll tell you this, I, this just hit me this morning, how I would love to see, you remember a few years back when DC, they were doing those shorts with their direct to DVD movies yep. Yep. and they did the specter. That was so great. Mm-hmm. I know you talked the about Jim it. The one was great. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, but that specter particularly had that kind of, 70s grindhouse yeah, feel to yeah, it. Absolutely, yeah. Imagine them doing that same treatment with this story, but Batman looking like a Marshall Rogers Batman. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and for God's sake, get Kevin Conroy. But, uh, you know, but, oh man, that would, ah. Uh, that would just this this would be a great little short like that. You I, know? I agree. I agree. I had that same thing. I was as I was describing it earlier when I said you know this could be translated into a comic and you don't really lose anything. That was actually one of the passages that you just read that I thought you would kind of get lost because and it's something that like like as a kid reading this I was like yeah you like if you're gonna write a Batman story like this you kind of have to think about it in less comic booky terms and more of like a series kind of novel. So you have to say, okay, how does Bruce Wayne actually function? Okay, he's got this he's got Batman's body, but how do you make it so nobody suspects that? You know, he he wears clothes that are specially tailored to to hide it, to make it look a little bit bigger. I also um one of my favorite pages, he has this uh description of Gotham City. It is a monster sprawled along twenty five miles of eastern seaboard, stirring and seething and ever restless. Eight million human beings live on streets that, if laid end-to-end, would stretch all the way to Tokyo, crammed into thousands of neighborhoods from the fire-gutted tenements of Chancerville, where rats nestled and babies' bedclothes and grandmothers forage in garbage cans, to the penthouses of Manor Row, where the cost of a single meal served by liveried servants would support an immigrant family for a year. It is countless chambers of crannies and corners and bars, boats, houses, hotels, elevators, offices, theaters, shacks, tunnels, depots, shops, factories, restaurants, newsstands, hospitals, junkyards, cemeteries, buses, cars, trains, trams, bridges, docks, sewers, parks, jails, mortuaries, the shelters of living and dead, millionaires and bums, fiends and saints. I mean, just, yeah, like even just like that, that list of things, you just like... It paints this picture, this collage of what Batman, what Gotham City is, and what it means. Yeah, yeah, I, I had that written down too. I was going to point that one out. Yeah, it's 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 the you know before before the hellish uh, Gotham City of of kind of began with the Dark Knight Returns, mm-hmm. but then definitely uh, with Anton First's version in Burton's yeah. movie. You know, yeah. uh, you know before that took hold. This is the more. This is the more Gotham City that can actually exist, yeah. you know. Um, and and I mean, I think basically it's the it's the New York of the mm-hmm. of of the seventies, which you know, by all accounts, was not the, the most <laughs> maybe not the safest place to live, you know. Right. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's that that just I mean, but yeah, again, you could take this and this could, I mean, this could be. Um, uh, like we said, this could be a treatment for a, a pilot for a Batman, a 70s Batman TV series. And I love uh, Rogers' art on that page. It's this sort of like 
collage of like you get the city with the waterfront and everything and it kind of flows into this other panel of like we're now we're on the street looking up at the roof the the, the skyline and everything with the bat wing the cape silhouette kind of off of one building and batman's eyes there it's just everything the mood and the atmosphere you capture there yeah, that page and then the page where Batman's running mm-hmm. uh, up top with the theater district below, that that's a wonderful – I mean that was the back cover of the comic too. Yeah. I mean – and the layout of the text, I want to point out the layout of the text on the back cover, the font and layout are different than inside. So I wonder if that's not from like the original version mm. that, that Rogers was maybe working with. But you can't – that that one's not done – that one's still done pretty well because it's – you know it, he left so much open space to put text in. Uh, but but it is different, so it makes me wonder. <laughs> Looking at the theater district and the people like walking across the street on that, I just I hear the Prince song, "The Future," from the beginning of the Batman movie. <laughs> yeah, I've seen yeah. the future and it will be. I've seen the future. Yeah, that's right. I love I love it. Yeah. yeah, and there's some people. There's tr- guys trying to get a cab with his family. Yeah, <laughs> the one hooker approaching the twelve year old kid. Hi, honey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's great. I do have one question while we're talking about the theater. Wasn't Dick Grayson supposed to be seeing the Buster Keaton movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess, but, you know, the action ha- takes place after everybody else walks out. Yeah. So I guess Dick Dick literally just walked out right before Batman showed up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's it's kind of weird to think that Batman wouldn't have, you know, I guess he didn't have his, you know, utility built radio on or something. He wouldn't give him a call and say, hey, you know, there's this blind guy there. I need you to find him. You know, so, okay, you know, or something. (laughs) Can I I ask you, I don't know if this is just like a a colloquialism or something of me. Like, I have never heard 12.03 a.m. described as midnight and three. Like is that like a phrase that you would ever heard? I would I would have heard three past twelve or three past midnight. I've never heard midnight and three being a, a phrase for twelve o three. No, you know, and honestly, because I haven't read this in in a, in a few years, I thought something happened at midnight and then something happened at three a.m. Yes. Yeah, I always thought that too. Like that was it, that was my first thought. I was like, okay, there's two different occurrences here: one at midnight and one at three. I was thinking that the one guy I knew that Bruce's friend that that kind of looks a little like Lucius Fox before, but this is right before Lucius is introduced, mm. is killed at midnight, and then the other guy's going to get killed at three. First at three, yeah, yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking. But he's like, oh no, it's it's twelve oh three, okay, mm. uh, which which is an odd time anyway. But I guess it ends at twelve, and then it takes him you know a few minutes for him to get out. And uh, I do I do love the fact that you know Denny, what's the most the last place you'd look for a blind man in a yeah. silent movie theater. You know, I mean, I mean, what does the man, I mean, I'm not, I don't understand what a, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to be insensitive. If, 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 if somebody that listens to the show is vision impaired or knows somebody that is, and there is some way for them to enjoy a silent movie, then let me know, you know, now, I mean, now they could probably have some kind of captioning the, to uh, uh, listen to with some kind of device or mm-hmm. something, you know, but they back do, then, actually, yeah. Yeah, back then in the theater, I don't know what they could do. So, so that is uh, th- that's a perfect place for that guy to hide. And I love the fact that that's you know it's and it's all because Alfred mentioned that Dick was going to the theater because because mm-hmm. Batman was asking for Robin's help basically. Um, I do have one question though: Where is Alfred at? Because the building looks like that kind of Frank Lloyd Wright yep. design of the penthouse. 
but it shows woods all around it. So, and it says it's 12 miles away, which 14 miles to Gotham City uh, from the TV show. Uh, it makes me think that it's actually Wayne Manor, but I've never seen Wayne Manor look that quite that modern, although it kind of looks a little bit like the the new home that Bruce and Alfred were living at in BVS. Yeah. And I actually, I like that update. I mean, as much as I'm kind of used to Batman or Bruce Wayne living in a Gothic castle looking <laughs> Wayne Manor, I like the idea that no, like the, the, they would have a more modern Frank Lloyd Wright design, like, you know, manor in the woods, you know, in like upstate New York or, or Gotham or upstate New Jersey, whatever it would be. Like that looks like a more realistic grounded version of what the Wayne estate would be. And this is a more realistic and grounded version for the story because of just the nature of how it's being presented. But then, yeah. like, in the panel with uh, Alfred, when we see, like, the full body shot and everything, like, it almost looks like he's by the windows and you see a skyline behind him. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could still see uh, – you could conceivably still see the cityscape that far away, I guess, uh, the skyline. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, that that's always kind of got me. You know, they'll show uh, Wayne Manor's out, way out, but they'll, they'll still see the bat signal shining through the window <laughs> back in the golden age. It's like, uh, you know. Uh, but I guess even on the TV show, they'd occasionally use the – They'd see the they'd see the signal in the sky, and they literally were 14 miles from Gotham City on that show because that's where that came from. It's so. like in Batman Returns, Bruce Wayne has a series of massive floodlights that reflect the bat signal into his own house, and nobody has ever asked what that's about, Bruce. <laughs> well, nobody that lived ever asked, you right, know, or right. they, they they never lived to ask again or yeah. find out, right? It's like it's like another one, sir. It's like Alfred, throw him in the cave, you know. <laughs> Didn't you have a party at this house a couple of years ago in the first movie? Nobody – all the reporters like Alexander Knox and Vicky Vale, they didn't notice these giant Klieg lights you've got on the grounds? It doesn't matter. You still get that awesome shot of Keaton turning around and then walking towards it. So yeah, It's, it's, a, it's like... a good shot. It's a good shot. I just think it would have made a lot more sense if he was in the penthouse of his uh, – of the Wayne Towers or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But now I, I just I, I do like that's I'm glad that Alfred, you know, gets uh, gets a little bit to do in, in this one. It's like, you know, Alfred's, uh, you know, before in the days when Batman could just like, uh, well, I mean, I guess he did it, you know, in stories before where he'd go to the Batmobile and hook into the back computer and things like that. But uh, I like the fact that he uses Alfred to get the information and Batman's using the payphone to call to call Wayne Manor, that's that's kind of <laughs> that's very old school. You know, it's got that it's got that grit. We talked about that on the the previous Denny O'Neill uh, episode we did with Robin Shag. That you know O'Neill brings that realism, that grit uh, to the stories, and just the idea of Batman, you know, <laughs> standing in the phone booth. You know, can you imagine if somebody? I mean, that would kind of be a little bit of a humorous aside if some guy come up and was like knocking on the phone booth and. <laughs> And, you know, it's like, I need to use the phone, buddy, you know, or something. And, and Batman <laughs> steps out. <laughs> Thinking of the, the homeless guy in Adventures and Babysitting, get out of my house! Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of the scene in Dumb and Dumber when the oh, guy's yeah. like, get off the phone, and the dude punches him through the through the glass. <laughs> I don't think Batman would punch some dude through the glass like that, but it'd just be funny for him to, you know, the guy's like, hey, buddy, get out of there, and then Batman just pokes his head out. This panel of, you know, Marshall Rogers Batman poking his head out of the phone booth with the phone in one hand, and the guy's like, you know, kind of like uh, Arthur Reeves and the Pooh, <laughs> yeah. you know, that then that in the Two Face story, you know, yeah, and the guy runs off. That would be hilarious. Yeah. 
the yeah. <laughs> you know you talked about the last you would still need that last page mm-hmm. the the splash page with oh that that uh that wonderful that wonderful ending with the just the guy reflected in in Batman's eye and and you know he began to crawl and it just oh this is <laughs> he's like so freaked he's like climbing out of his chair like he can't like sit like he's like almost gonna fall backwards in fright as he just this extreme close up of Batman's face where you really just see the one eye and part of his cheek yeah it's it's just uh, yeah I mean O'Neill you know his Batman his Batman as we said it's, he's very human we said that in a previous story. But he he is like I think the greatest intimidator, <laughs> with with the lack with with you know r- using relatively few moves on people. I mean he like well like when he's in the theater he takes out the one guy, but he actually convinces the the guy to give up his gun. Mm-hmm. And and you know that's that's not you know that's that's the difference between this Batman and the modern Batman, because we've all bemoaned the fact that Batman has just become a, you know, an arm breaker. He's just, he's become a maimer, you know? Yes. I mean, he, just, he he goes in to just like cripple people and maim them. And, and, you know, they're all, they're going to, they're never going to be physically able to use their hands or their legs or, you know, I mean, it's just in, and, and, and that's just, that that's to me, that's just a step too far. You know I mean? That's, that's why, you know, I, I mean, there's there's aspects of Aff- uh, Ben Affleck's Batman that I like, but then there's other, you know, the, I mean, the whole the, the scene where he's fighting those guys, you know, in, in the movie is 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 great to a point. But then they take it that one step further where he's just like running over people with the Batmobile and and, and just it, 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 it's just it's just too much. But, you know, O'Neill's Batman, he scares the living crap out of them. He, he when they don't respond to the fear at first. He shows them why they should be afraid, and then he stops, mm-hmm. and th- and then he lets the fear kick in and lets the fear do the work. <laughs> there was a thing on Twitter yesterday. It was like uh, the some organized like trending of all the the Snyder Cut fans who want to get Ben Affleck his own Batman movie again. They think he was robbed. He should have had because Ben Affleck wrote a script for a solo Batman movie, and like he mm-hmm. wrote one, he should get a chance to make it like make Batfleck happen or something like that, and. Just uh, for uh, I don't know Schadenfreude or something or, or my own pain. I just I was like, okay, let me indulge. Let me read some of these and just seeing what these people want. I was like, this is not a Batman that I want anything to do with. I don't want to see this. They somebody took a, a shot from one of the Arkham games. I don't know which one it was, but Batman is basically has like the rem- the Batmobile on remote, almost driving over a guy's head. He's got like the tire parked on a guy's head to interrogate him to get information and the guy's like hashtag brutality and he's like this is what batman should be and this is what we could have bat ben affleck doing in a movie and i'm like uh no i was was like i was like that's that i was like no you're this is a batman who is a psychopath who who just wants to hurt people and kill people and endanger people and and is basically the punisher and i was like if that's your view of batman we do not see the same character in the same way and right. it's just it's it's sort of I was I was like revolted like on a physical level that somebody it's like that I was like that's when it's hard to be a fan of this character in this franchise when so many people and I, maybe it is a minority but it's a loud minority because of the way people interact online and on social media so many people have a view of this character that to me is not only uninteresting and unsympathetic but to me is like actually 
kind of perverse and nonsensical. Like to think that Batman would go to those extremes. Like you want the Punisher. You want a story with the Punisher dressed in a Batman costume. And it's like that that's not who he is. But you know, we, we, we say Batman belongs to everybody and everybody has his own version of Batman and and you can like the campy Batman and you can like the Dark Knight Rises Batman. But at some point there are people like I don't know, the version you like is gross. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I think, and, and given, given what's going on in our society now, I think, I think we could use a Batman that's, we can use Denny O'Neill's Batman, you know, Um, the the fact that this person on Twitter hashtag the word brutality. I'm like, do you know what's going on in the world right now? I was like, I don't think you, I was like, if, if you're going to embrace that type of vigilantism, I was like, I have an idea of your worldview and your personal politics that, I don't have anything to say to you. So. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's what's really emerged with me with reading these O'Neill stories here lately is, is that, that's, that's the difference, you know, and 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 of course the cute little thing like the guy confesses to Batman he didn't, hadn't, you know, he hasn't paid his <laughs> taxes, <laughs> and Batman's like, you pay your taxes, you know, and 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 he's like, yes, sir, I, I will, I'm going to, you know, all this stuff. It's like I like that fact that this this Batman is still he's still got that little bit of of the square Adam West Batman, you know, in him that, that you can reconcile. It's the same guy, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. like Batman, Batman has these moral standards. It's like, well, you, you know, you shouldn't cheat on your taxes, you know, that's like, <laughs> you know, and, 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 but, but I mean, you can't, you can't imagine the Batman that would like almost run over a guy's head, threaten him with that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, when Michael Keaton's holding the guy over the roof, you know, uh, you know, that, I mean, that that's a that's a level of, you know, Batman's intimidating somebody. But but, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, the guy says, don't kill me, don't kill me. And he tells him, I'm not going to kill you. He tells him, I'm not going to kill you, you know. Right. right. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to scare the crap out of you, but I'm not going to kill you. You know, it's like the, the, the level that we're at with that kind of scene of Batman is I might kill you and maybe I won't. You know, that that's the difference. You know, it's like that's that's the line you don't, in my opinion, you don't cross into with Batman because he does at that point become the Punisher. And, and it's the, it's actually the kind of story that O'Neill wrote. We're going back to, we're full circle in here that he, that he spearheaded Nightcast about, I mean, Nightcast, huh, Nightfall about is, you know, um, that's why Batman at the end didn't, I mean, I particularly remember Jean Paul, like, you know, goes scratches him with his his claws on his armor and he's like this way is wrong you know and he he, batman looks at him and says that and you know like i said when i was a teenager and i didn't want batman to kill him or anything like that but i did want him to give him a a pretty good you know pretty good uh beat down but again i was a mush head teenager you know and i i i figured out what he was getting at now i wouldn't want batman to do that so uh, yeah, but but I mean, we're that this is the that's the lesson that O'Neill was trying to teach us, you know, almost 30 years ago now. And, you know, unfortunately, the lesson, it may have been learned then, but like a lot of lessons, it's been forgotten. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, my last note for the story is a little tiny little connection. The blind man, uh, Tony Toombs, uh, according to according to Alfred's files, he was born in Rockford, Illinois. That's like forty-five minutes away from my hometown. So I used to. Oh to, wow! I used to go to Rockford a lot. So there that's you where, go. Uh, the band Cheap Trick is from is from Rockford. Oh okay, there you go. Yeah. 
Well, didn't you, didn't your didn't your dad like go see Cheap Trick? Like, wasn't that one of the bands <laughs> yeah, you saw yeah, playing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the story that, that uh, yeah, that my brother was telling me. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Wow, yeah, I like Cheap Trick. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do a Cheap Trick episode of uh, FW Records. <laughs> I I think that's actually on one of the lists that Neil and I have made. We've gotten like forty possible episodes or something. I think we could do a Cheap Trick one. That wouldn't be too hard. So. Just don't talk about the flame because apparently they hate that song. Okay. <laughs> Even though it probably their like biggest hit, they hate yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, any final thoughts on the story before we move on? I I think this you know if this is in a lot of ways pure Denny O'Neill Batman. Um, you know I I think it's it's not like a groundbreakingly important story to Batman. Um, it's 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 not. Like the concept of the story is nothing extraordinary. It's a, it's a very crime noir story. Right. Um, it's uh, you could see it easily being a, a a gritty a gritty cop film or, or detective series in the seventies. Uh, but it's the execution. It's it's the language. It's the descriptions that O'Neill uses that that really shows his understanding of the character of Batman, the city, the the setting. Uh, Gotham, um, it, it's just this perfect little, perfect little uh, capsule of of, of Danny O'Neill's Batman, and you know, like we said, you could you could have it without the art, and it'd be wonderful. Uh, but you know, you still get to look at Marshall Rogers' wonderful pictures, and and I think by this point, we're not quite in the air, we're not quite got to in a detective run where his Batman was fully formed quite yet. His, his visual on Batman. Cause here he's got the, the thicker ears and mm-hmm. he's, he's got, and he's got like his Batman down by this point. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's like, it's like chocolate and peanut butter going <laughs> together. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful Reese's cup of, of Batman goodness. <laughs> I have some problems with the final production and the layout. Uh, and, and I think there are some things where it just, it, some things are incompatible and just because of how, like, I mean, on the third page, the panels across the top and the panels across the bottom where Rogers is conveying the action, which really wasn't necessary. I mean, these are a lot of really small panels that he's coming out. It's like he, he was trying to dare George Perez or something. He's like, oh, you think you can put a lot of small panels on a page? Let me show you. Hold my can. beer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, some of those I, I find a little bit more distracting, but some of the bigger uh, mood-setting atmospheric shots, like the giant shot of the eyeball with the gun in front of it for the blind man, uh, the mm-hmm. shots of the cityscape, more of the atmospheric uh, tone setting or setting or, or, or place setting shots, I think are glorious. And especially that, that final splash page, what a capper. So I think with a, some, some tweaks and some production changes, this could be great. But as a story on the, on the prose level, what Denny is able to capture the way he gets the, the insights he reveals into Batman from a, just a functional pragmatic level are great that makes this one of my favorite batman one shots like just as a standalone tale Um, yeah i I think it's incredible so yeah i think they got as far as your production quibbles i think they got better with in detective 500 there's that story by walter gibson who created the shadow 
and drawn by one of your favorites, Tom Yeats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that it the text flows around the art a lot better than that one. It's got fewer illustrations, and I think that's kind of more the presentation that you need to go with for a story like this. I think you're right. So yeah, maybe, but maybe I, that was in my mind because I just yeah, looked at that I, story a couple months ago. Yeah, I, I think I think I think it's the yeah I think it's more the the way to go. But yeah, I, I agree that there's some production problems. But yeah, overall this this definitely deserved to be in the greatest Batman stories ever told. So, mm-hmm. all right, folks. With that, we are going to take a promo break right now. But when we come back, we're going to talk about well Michael Keaton's possible return to the role of Batman on film and read your comments from the last episode. Don't go away. Ah. Uh. After a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute, that's not a radio, it's... Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Plastic Man! That's right, it's the Plasticast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together, we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law, here on the Plasticast, here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. All right, uh, as it was reported about maybe 10 days ago from the time that you're going to hear this episode, came about really unexpectedly, but there is talk of Michael Keaton returning to the cape and cowl that he played in Batman and Batman Returns in 1989 and 1992. Um, I, the, the reports at first, it said Warner Brothers is moving forward with their plans for a Flashpoint movie, which would basically be The Flash with Ezra Miller but possibly using elements of the Jeff Johns Flashpoint story to kind of play with continuity and history to possibly open up a a bigger multiverse or give them an excuse to recast things. These have been plans that they've been talking about for years, uh, really, since they, they knew that they had problems with Justice League. We'll see what happens. So there's talk that instead of bringing the Ben Affleck Batman into that movie. They're going to have Michael Keaton's uh, playing the same type of Batman, the same character in the same universe as the Tim Burton version. And then in some reports, they were saying like he, he is really just going to be a mentor figure. And they compared him to the Nick Fury of the Marvel cinematic universe, where he's going to organize the flash, possibly Batgirl and some other like, you know, younger heroes and everything. And he'll be sort of the, the, the organizer, the mentor figure. That's springboarded into a lot of people saying, well, why don't they just do Batman Beyond? And then other people are saying they are doing a Batman Beyond, but I don't know if that was in the initial report. So I think that might just be some wish fulfillment on fans' parts that has turned into rumors um, of a Batman Beyond movie. But uh, if we, if we sift through this, what do you what do you think about this? I, you know, it's, it's one of those cases that the idea of Michael Keaton coming back as Batman uh, excites me no matter what it's in because I think – I think time has shown that that Keaton had the perhaps the you know the best he he definitely had the best handle on Batman of those initial four films uh, the the Burton Schumacher films of course you know he you know and I think partially too because Adam West has left us 
he kind of is the Batman, you know, to a point of he is the classic Batman uh, at this point in a, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and a lot of people look at that that movie as, you know, um, of course, super, they look at Superman the movie, too, but Christopher Reeve is gone. So they look at that movie as the beginning of the the comic, the, the modern comic book movie in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Keaton's kind of the granddaddy of, of, of superhero actors uh, of for for, you know. Of the people who are are still young enough to be, you know, generally engaged in in, in the basically the audience that that goes out and buys things that <laughs> <laughs> that spends the money that theater the theater chains and and, and TV uh, you know uh, TV you know uh, uh, networks and stuff are interested in. Uh, Michael Keaton is is Batman. You know, he's he's their Batman. So I, I think um, I think that has a lot to do with it too. But I mean, I think the and we've just, I think we've discussed this before how Batman 89 has kind of it went through a phase where it didn't age quite as well but then you know come back a few years later it's like no no that's still that's aged pretty well you know it's it's mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's far enough removed it's far enough back that you can kind of forgive like well that that's clearly a cartoon that's Joker that's falling to his death you know right. uh and, and, and not very convincing animation and 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 Batman on the 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 roof is clearly a animation, his shadow, and you know things like that. Uh, but the, you know the things that where you know it's it looks a it looks a little rushed despite the uh, despite the budget and everything. But you know one thing that's definitely has held up is is Keaton's very nuanced performance as as Bruce Wayne and Batman, and uh, anything that gets him back in the saddle. I would much rather I would rather him just do a straight Batman Beyond movie and not muddy the waters with with Flash and and everything. But I mean, I will say this: that the Crisis on Infinite Earths TV event on the CW, you know, it had its flaws. It was on a TV budget, uh, but they really did capture that fun feel of all these different disparate universes, these different versions of the characters coming together. Uh, particularly with the the Brandon Routh Superman coming back. So, I mean, I kind of feel like that would kind of be a similar thing. They, you know, that same feeling with Keaton would even have more gravitas because, you know, um, you know, Keaton played Batman twice and he played Batman in that movie that that launched a thousand ships, basically, <laughs> more or less. So, I, you know, and, and, and I, I think back to just, you know, a few years ago, I think it was some I think it was uh, some university in Ohio that that uh it was a graduation and keaton was the keynote speaker and there's this you can find it out on youtube but this this wonderful quote at the end you know but keaton's up on stage and he's like before i go i just want to tell you two things i wanted uh two words that i want you to remember and he just and he gets up right to the mic and goes i'm batman and then just and walks off and the crowd goes nuts you know it's like hell yeah you are batman you know it's like <laughs> and it's so weird because i mean i'm young enough to remember when everyone lost their shit when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. Mm-hmm. Pre-internet, how Comic Buyer's Guide was full of letters from people losing their minds. Oh my God, they cast Mr. Mom as yep. Batman. And I mean, just lost their minds. I mean, they've, and they've lost their minds over Ben Affleck being cast and to some point Robert Pattinson being cast as Batman. And, and you know, I, I mean, maybe the only person that got cast as Batman they didn't lose their mind over was Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're like, oh yeah, I can see that guy's Batman. Uh, but, you know, which, it worked out very well. But, but, but uh, it, it's just weird to think how we've come around to Michael Keaton being ah, Batman, <laughs> you know. Oh, God, Michael Keaton, come back. Thank God it's Michael Keaton. 
coming back as Batman. And and it's like, yeah, I remember when nobody wanted Michael Keaton to be Batman, including, I mean, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, Michael, I like Michael Keaton a lot. I mean, I love, you know, God help me, I love Johnny Dangerously, but me Beetlejuice, too. but I'm like, I don't know about him being Batman, but I really like Michael Keaton, so maybe you'd be all right. And then I and then I saw, I guess, you know, everybody was talking about, I never saw Clean and Sober before Batman, but I saw the scenes in Clean and Sober that everybody's like, oh, no, look at Batman, Michael Keaton can can play serious, you know, and. Here he is in clean and sober as his alcoholic and recovering his alcoholics is trying to, you know, uh, recover. And, and um, I, I was like, OK, well, I'll give him. And then and then, of course, they they rushed that first trailer out like it came out like at the end of end of 88 or very early 89, you know, back when they did not do that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and I don't even think they had the music in the first trailer. Or, so it was like little. Star Wars The Force Awakens, which had a teaser 13 months before the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't do that back then. That was not done. I mean, if, if if it was, it didn't show. It was like that first teaser trailer for Superman the movie that just showed a, you know, it was a plane flying through the clouds. that came mm-hmm. with a, you know, The camera mm-hmm. mounted on it, you know. Uh, that that That's the kind of teaser trailer you got. You didn't see actual footage. but And once we saw him, I'm like, oh, damn, they pulled it off so but yeah no i've been rambling long enough but no i'm i'm actually down for whatever they do as long as i'm willing to give it a shot because i i do like the idea of michael keaton coming back as an older bruce wayne batman (laughs) Uh, i am i'm nervous about the idea uh and as far as live action goes michael keaton is my batman he's the one i grew up with as i've said before i've i saw that first batman movie more times in the theater than any other movie i've ever seen i like adam west for what that for what that batman is and i appreciate and as i've gotten older i appreciate that version of batman a lot more especially when i compare it to other things i also still really like the christian bale dark knight batman for what that is mm-hmm. um but for me the the greatest synthesis for what i think of as batman is Michael Keaton's performance. And part of it is because, to me, he got Bruce Wayne in a way that I that I haven't seen other people. And part of it is just his natural acting ability. I also think Michael Keaton, if nothing else, he has some of the most empathetic eyes in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And when I see him in, in certain shots in Batman and Batman Returns, when I'm looking into his eyes, I see a 10-year-old kid who has just watched his parents be murdered on the street in front of him. And, like, that part of Batman that never grew up, that is still haunted and is still in Crime Alley on his knees. Um, and I, I see that in Michael Keaton's eyes, that that type of pain that might be just naturally unique to the actor, that that he has that from his own dark places. Um, but in any sense, he was able to channel that. You also see the same, I mean, cut to Spider-Man Homecoming, when you see just a close-up of his eyes in the rearview mirror when he's putting mm. together, who is this in the back seat with my daughter? That, like, Hollywood knows this. I'm not, I'm not saying anything super profound. They know what this guy is capable of doing. Yeah. So between playing the villain in a Spider-Man movie and then playing Birdman before that, which he, he's really channeling a lot of what was going on with the Batman and, and sort of homaging that and parodying that to some extent, I think... There was definitely the, – the seeds for this have been laid for a while, for a couple of years. They, they've sort of planted this, that he could come back and do this thing. And as yeah. I love him so – but, 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 it's not that 
I'm afraid of what the movie would be or something like that. Because I like you, I don't care about Flashpoint or, or whatever movie. That, like I like I I just have so much bad taste in my mouth for the Snyderverse and everything about that that I just I don't want any of that. So I don't care about Flashpoint or something. And if they skip that and just did a Batman Beyond movie. Okay, that's something, but I didn't watch Batman Beyond. I've only seen maybe two episodes in the movie, I think. So uh, I don't have the same love for that as a property. My concern, my real fear is not how good of a Batman, how good a performance he would get, because I know he'll be terrific. It's not a concern of how good the movie will be, because it could probably be really good. My concern is fan expectations. And I look back to the recent Star Wars movies. That said, we're going to we're going to play to our audience's love and nostalgia and expectations by bringing back the old cast. We're going to bring Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher back to get them excited. The problem is when you do that, the fans want to see Han Solo and Luke Skywalker again, and you're going to have some audiences who want to see the new kids, the Ray and the Finn and the. What's the name of the kid in Batman Beyond? Terry? Terry McGinnis or something? Terry, Terry McGinnis, yeah. Some fans will want to see those adventures. But you're going to have a lot of people who go to see that movie expecting to see 60, 65-year-old Michael Keaton put on the cape and cowl and kick some ass as Batman. It's like, I don't think that's what you're going to get, and that might not be realistic, and that might not be where the story should go. And because I think that was the problem with the Star Wars movies is so many people I heard like, why didn't Luke Skywalker show up at the end of Star Wars seven with his lightsaber and kick the crap out of Kylo Ren and Snoke? It's like, because the movie was supposed to be about passing the torch to the next generation. Well, the audience didn't like that idea. They wanted their old fandoms back. And then the con- filmmakers got confused over whose movie this was. Is it the old generation? Is it the new generation? And you you basically have this war between boomers and millennials playing out in this trilogy that's just a mess. <laughs> and I am really afraid that the same thing could happen to Batman. And you're going to have people like me and you who love who love Michael Keaton's Batman and, and really want to see that. But it might be so tempting to see, yeah, let him put on the cowl. Let him kick ass again. Let him do that. It's like, no, he's too old, and that's not what you're building. It has to be about passing the torch. And do you want Michael Keaton to just be the guy standing in the Batcave alone giving advice to the younger character? Isn't that just going to sort of taint it? Aren't you always going to be wondering what else he could be doing so part of me thinks if you're going to do a Batman Beyond, just, no, cast somebody new. Cast somebody that doesn't have the, fa- I mean, you could do something weird, like have George Clooney or Christian Bale play the older part, because I don't know if you'd have the same, the same kind of love and affection. I just, I don't know. I, I think putting him in a Batman Beyond type of situation or the elder statesman and not letting him be the hero that so many people still remember, I think that's going to invite a whole lot of problems from the fan base. And I just, I don't trust the people to to accept what they're probably going to get. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just, it's, 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 not a, it's not a lack of confidence in the actor or the even the filmmaking. It's a lack of confidence in the fan base. I mean, look people what we're just talking about. You've got, you got Batman fans who want him to drive the Batmobile's tire over the heads of criminals. I, I don't know if we're emotionally ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> you don't deserve Michael Keaton, people. I, I think that's... He's not the Batman. He's he's the Batman we need, but not the one you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can see. I, I definitely. I, I am. I am totally. I am totally flummoxed by Star Wars fandom. I. I. I, I cannot even. I, I. I can't even go there. I am so. I, it is beyond me to even understand where these some of these people are, are coming from. I mean, there's you know, the just the film guys, the people who are also toy guys, and some of the. Some of the YouTube channels I used to watch that I don't watch now because people have literally had aneurysms on screen over <laughs> stuff that's like, dude, it's just, I mean, look outside your window and then stop worrying about this stuff this much. I mean, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I can see where you're coming from. I do think, though, and, and I, you know, I, I would recommend, I would highly recommend watching Batman Beyond. Yeah, I mean, there's some episodes here and there that, you know, it's just like Batman the Animated Series or anything that, that aren't as great as others. But overall, it's a really great show. And uh, I think the treatment, the way they use Bruce Wayne in that series, I mean, to my knowledge, old Bruce Wayne only suits up one time and it's in some kind of bat armor that he's developed, you know, and it's because he absolutely has to go save Terry. And... um that that's it. So I mean, you know, um, that you know, you never see old old Bruce, you know, running around in his actual cowl and uh, cape anymore. You know, after after he's because he's like eighty, you know, uh, in that series. So uh, you know, yeah, I think Bruce. You know, they would have to basically treat Batman. Uh, Bruce. It would be Bruce Wayne in the cave um, as you know the the man. He would be the man in the chair, basically. And you'd see his Batman costume off to the side in a glass tube or something you know unless they did you know i mean who knows they could uh you know if they can get the marvel studios guys to come over and you know smooth out you know keaton's face for some uh <laughs> for some <laughs> batman for some flashbacks to why batman retired or whatever that would be cool but but uh yeah i i, I see your trepidation but i think that in a lot of ways the the dc universe fan base is already very fractured, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because there's there's definitely those, you know, like most of the guys here on the network who are kind of like with the the Snyder interpretation of things, as evidenced by the uh, you know the uh, the BVS Accords, uh, uh, you know the the BVS episode we did all those years ago. Uh, none of us were too too high on most of the aspects of of that film. Uh, and, you know, and then Justice League was just this, you know, it, you know, some of us liked it better than others, but we all kind of agreed that it was kind of a mishmash of, you know, but now we're getting the Snyder cut and it's like, well, a lot of people really want the Snyder cut and other people are like, yeah, yeah, we not, not so much, but I, I think that fan base is already kind of fractured. And I think, I think Warner brothers is, is, is trying to, you know, maybe the, the you know, Michael Keaton's the olive branch to, <laughs> <laughs> to, to bring the to bring the two sides together you know it's like okay old folks we can all you know i think most of you even you you guys that really like the snyder cut can the snyder stuff can agree that michael keaton was a pretty great batman right so look here's michael keaton and you guys that don't like snyder stuff love michael keaton so we're going to bring him in to you know ezra miller's flash and and um you know and and we'll make it all it all makes sense and Although it is it is really kind of weird, and I kind of wonder how Matt Reeves feels about all this going on while he's trying to make a Batman movie that he's he would be filming or maybe even wrapped by now if not for COVID, you know. Right. So how does he feel about? Well, damn, I haven't even got my Batman movie done, and you're bringing the, you know, you're bringing the old guy back. You know, it's like 
you know, journeys out with their new front man on tour. But yeah, we're going to cut an album with Steve Perry over here. So is that okay? You know, it's like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> the new front man's like, what the frick Steve Perry? Oh, damn. Now, now what's the point? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I kind of wonder how he feels. You know, I, I know they're saying, well, that, you know, that'll be a totally separate continuity in a different, a different universe. And, and all this and it's like yeah but and i guess it'll all be part of the same multiverse but it it is kind of odd that they're basically doing this because the cw already did this you know they they just did this you know Mm -hmm. uh with the different universes coming together i mean they even showed the 1989 batman universe because you had robert wool as alexander knox and you know he reacted to red skies going i hope you see this buddy you know or whatever he said so, I mean, the, the 89 Batman universe is part of the CW multiverse, or it was, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's, it, it was shocking and interesting to, if they'd announced the Batman Beyond movie, I wouldn't have been as, oh, well, that's because, because there's been talks of a Batman Beyond movie, like, even back before Batman Begins come out, there was, was it Darren Aronsky or whatever? Darren Aronsky, yeah, I never can say that guy's name. I thought he was like throwing around the idea of a Batman Beyond movie at one point. Somebody was. And uh, and I know he like pitched a year one, too, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody, maybe it was somebody else that had Batman Beyond um, that they had pitched it. But, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, we're coming up on, well, hell, it's been 15 years since, since uh, Batman Begins came out. So, I mean, that's even before that. So, I mean, it's, it's that's been percolating for close to 20 years at this point. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, it's, I, I would much rather see him just do a straight up Batman beyond, but I, I can't help but be kind of interested. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I wasn't as taken with Ezra Miller's flash. I mean, he was kind of funny, but he was a little too on all the time. I think in, in just the, in the version of justice league we got, but, um, I'm willing to see what they come up with and we'll just, who knows? I mean, they, it's kind of weird that they went this crazy with it that, you know, they're in talks if, they haven't nailed him down if what if keaton says no are they going to go to george clooney or val <laughs> kilmer and hey could you guys do it you know i mean maybe clooney maybe clooney deserves another shot you know to to redeem him stuff because the poor man has carried the burden of batman and robin long enough right <laughs> uh, yeah. speaking of which you know we got to mention too that we lost joel schumacher we did this past yeah. this past week and you know it, it, in a lot of ways the poor guy did not deserve to be for Batman and Robin to hang around his neck like it did. Honestly, you know, no, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, because of the franchise and the exposure, I mean, those are the movies that he's going to be remembered for. And unfortunately, those are possibly his worst two movies. I, I don't know. He, I think he's done a few other turkeys, but he's also done some great movies, movies that I grew up loving. I, I don't know why, but I have this undying, undying huh, to, uh, for the film Flatliners. And the movie's mm-hmm. got the movie's got problems, lots of problems. Um, but I love that movie. I saw that movie when I was a kid, and like I, I like I memorized the whole thing after one sitting, like one viewing, and I was describing it to my friends, like I'm in the playground or something like that, and all these characters. I don't know. So something about that movie I always loved. And then The Lost Boys, also like, being one of the first movies that was like as scary as it was funny. And just like, like, and sort of also embraced comic book culture. I mean, like the, the fact that the Frogbirds had like comic books to it. Like they, they didn't even shy away from that. Um, and he's done other things. Um, he actually did 
a Vietnam War movie called Tigerland, which was actually more about like the boot camp and the training for it, um, with um, uh, who Colin Farrell. Yeah, I think it's mm. Colin Farrell. Like before anybody knew who he was. Uh, if you yeah, if you ever get the chance, it's a really good really like for like a a basic training Vietnam War movie. Tigerland is really really good, and you if you watch that, you'd be like. This is not the same guy who directed Batman and Robin. Like, you would never imagine the two are the same. Right, and Falling Down, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, he directed, he directed a lot of great movies, and it's kind of, it's kind of a shame. Now, I actually do have quite a fondness for, for Batman Forever. I mean, there's, there's aspects of that movie that I really, that are some of my favorite scenes in, in a Batman movie. And then there's other scenes that are some of my least favorite scenes in a Batman movie. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, just the overall, I mean, yeah, the, the, the parts of Batman and Robin that, that didn't work are creeping in. I think my biggest problem with Batman and Robin is it's just a, it's an unimaginative remake of, of Batman forever. It's basically the same movie again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so boilerplate. It's like, this is obviously the same scene just with different villains, you know, and, and mm-hmm. now we've added Batgirl, you know, basically, um, you know, you could feel the the Kenner Hasbro fingers in there. Sell toys. We need three vehicles at the end of this movie. You know, uh, that that make absolutely no sense. Uh, you know, and, and we need different. We need costume changes. And you know, it's 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 definitely you know the greed getting getting the uh, better of the franchise at, at this point. But like I said, it you know you can you can argue all day that the, the direction he went in was not the direction they needed to go and. And, you know, certainly Clooney couldn't play a, a gritty, grounded Batman in, uh, in in a movie like that. Although I, I, his scenes with Alfred or with Bruce and Alfred are very good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do kind of hate that, that Schumacher, you know, uh, forever will be remembered for... <laughs> <laughs> for for that film and actually I don't think Batman and Robin financially did that poorly. I think it did fairly well. It was just like immediately after it came out though the 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 the, the, the overall consensus was wow, that was bad. You know, even <laughs> though it it made like we all went that we all got drunk that weekend and went and saw that movie and then after the the hangover was over, we were all like, "Oh god, what the hell did we just see?" you know, basically. <laughs> So yeah, I, I but, think uh, I saw it twice just to see the trailer for the Lost World or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, I saw it one time, and I pre—I I, I think I remember trying to kind of rationalize it to me, Cindy, and 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 I think Cindy was kind of like, "No, honey, that was just bad. I'm yeah. sorry. I can't. I can't. You know, you're you're trying to make you're you're trying to make it." Uh, rationalized but you know and there's other people though i know some people who legitimately love that movie and it's like you know know what it's just fun i i enjoy it it's 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 fun and and they think you know well you know how can you like the you know the adam west batman and not like this and and i'm like well adam west batman was written was was written and produced with a clever little wink at you know uh you know working on two levels and and this is just not as sharply written or pulled off in my opinion, but, but, uh, as, as Adam West Batman at its best, I mean, it, there's certainly episodes of the Adam West TV series that, that are definitely in the same category. But, but like I said, I, you know, it's, it's a shame that, that Schumacher is, is, is remembered for, like you said, the Turkey that, uh, overall versus the, uh, the, the, the very good films he made. But, you know, I was sad to, to hear that he passed on. 
All right. Well, we got to get to our listener feedback. So. Yeah. <laughs> Enough stuff. We got to talk about relevant Batman stuff yeah. <laughs> to this show. On the last episode, we covered the first two Batman stories by the O'Neill Adams team from Detective Comics 395 and 397. The general consensus was that I think almost everybody liked Secret of the Waiting Graves, and most people knew about it already, but a lot of our listeners had never read Paint a Picture of Peril before. Yep. Uh, uh, the first comment that we got was from Rob Kelly from this here Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob said, Cheers, the Orson Welles connection. Jeers, Batman's vendetta against innocent animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we pointed that out. A couple, a couple of innocent animals got killed in Batman's quest for justice. Yeah, Dan Doherty left a two-part comment. In the first part, he talked about not liking the redrawn art in the Neil Adams collections and preferring the Showcase Presents volumes that reprint the original issues only in black and white. He went on to describe how, even with all the places they've been reprinted, the only way to truly get the non-special edition versions of the classic Adams issues is to collect the individual issues, which can get a little pricey. Mm. This led to the second part of Dan's comments, which involved collecting the issues or getting the stories in reprint collections. He said, I've been reading and collecting comics for over 30 years, and I have boxes and boxes and boxes of individual issues, as well as bookshelves of trade paperbacks, hardcovers, and vagrant-killing omnibuses. <laughs> That's from the, the Fantastic Cast, which is now no longer with us. Uh, I'm getting to the point where I can continue to do one or the other, but I can't do both. I've been going in circles debating the pros and cons of which do I like better, individual issues versus collected editions, as well as bagging and boarding versus not bagging and boarding, because personally, I really don't like having to bag and board my books unless I have to. Uh, then Dan also talked about the idea of having a fixed start and stop point in the collection to make it more manageable and so you're not obsessing over getting all 1,000 issues of Detective which would never happen. And he asked for our thoughts and our personal collecting preferences. So what's, what's, what are, what are, where do you weigh in on this, Ryan? Oh, gosh. it's For some reason, as often as possible, I like to have a physical copy if it's a book that I'm doing for a podcast. If it's like a book that I know I'm going to be reviewing, I want to have the individual issue, the original, in my hand. Even if I never talk about the quality of paper or the ads or the letters column, things like that, for some reason I just like to have that copy and everything like that. Um, but aside from that, I mean, I, I mean, I still have a bunch of long boxes in my parents' basement out in Illinois. Um, but like once, once I left and like in college, like once, once trade paperbacks sort of becoming the norm, I dropped like floppies and like the regular single issues and went to collecting almost exclusively trades and hardcover collections and everything. And then when I moved out to Vermont and I didn't have a local comic book store for a while that was easily accessible, that was close by, once digital became an option, I went hardcore into digital. I was getting everything on Comixology or, you know, now subscription services and everything like that. Um, there are still a few just because I like them almost as, as decorative, like, placeholders and everything. And, and I do, I still like the sensation of holding a book in my hand and flipping through the pages. So I, I get, I get collections and, and trades and hardcovers for some things. Um, but I would say, 75% of my reading is digital now. 
and only a few uh, like when I like if I go to a comic store and I'm 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 back issue buying. I'm I'm looking for older comics f- almost exclusively for stuff that I'm going to podcast about. Um, I don't collect any new books and everything, and there aren't any series that I'm trying to collect every issue of. So yeah. Well, with me, I I don't I don't know. I, I'm kind of in this weird nebulous nebulous place. I kind of quit. You know, I was buying a lot of DC comics, especially up until like around 2008. I kind of quit cold turkey for a while and just like quit buying anything new because I I really didn't like the direction DC was going in at the time, and that was going to lead to the the new 52 basically just a few years later. And uh, but you know, since then, you know, especially since like Rebirth and stuff, I've kind of jumped back in and bought some new stuff and it runs in here and there. But I don't know that that completed mentality has kind of left me i think because my you know unbroken unbroken run got broken you know (laughs) you know over over 10 years ago now 12 years ago or so now that i I just i i don't feel that oh my god i gotta have it all like i I used to and and uh you know like the comic the local comic shop i go to heroes realm in, in lexington kentucky it's um it, you know they've they've got quite a, a nice selection of uh, just dollar comics in the back. Like all their back issues are pretty much a dollar, and um, you know I, I like going through there and finding books like um, you know Super Friends and Superman Family and books like that that are that, you know up until recently weren't you know, Super Friends wasn't collected beyond a certain point. Now like the first twenty six issues are available in a hardcover, but mm-hmm. um, you know books like that that I can just like I want to read just to. You know, it's a cheap, it's a cheap uh, uh, little thrill to, you know, I pay a dollar and I add to this collection. I get to read the story. Um, I've got the DC Universe app. Um, I don't, I, I do prefer to have the physical copy in my hand, either a trade or a, uh, uh, I'm not going to call it a floppy because I know that upsets people, or a <laughs> individual issue. Uh, for a podcast, same as you. I, yeah, I know. Like, in fact, when we did that Gene Colan uh, Captain America episode, I was really bummed that I couldn't find my copy of it because I'm <laughs> like, I know I have it. I want to have the physical book in my hand. And I couldn't find it. Yet, send it to me, but a scans of it. But, but um, I, I, yeah, I've thought about getting the Marvel Unlimited app uh, because I think I would really enjoy it. But I am a little. I'm still a little hesitant to deep dive into to digital that much. Although I have used the DC Universe app four podcast episodes and and things like that and just to read stories like well i have never actually seen this i've never actually read this story i've you know heard of it for years i've never read it and then they'll have it on there and i'll read it so i'm i'm kind of slowly getting more into it as time goes on i really don't have any more spaces for any more long boxes (laughs) if you've seen my (laughs) if you've seen my toy room video you know i don't have any more uh, space for (laughs) long boxes um, they're at the back of the room covered up by a, a Ben Cooper Spider-Man parka partially. Uh, but, uh, so I really don't, uh, have any room for that, but, uh, those, but, uh, I, you know, I still pick up, uh, I, I don't buy a whole lot of modern new comics. I do some things here and there. Um, I have been getting Captain America. That's about the only, uh, regular title I'm getting, which has actually been pretty good. So yeah, I'm kind of torn. I, I think, I think I've kind of with action figures and with uh, comics, I have finally gotten over that. I have to have everything hump because there's just too much, you know, at some point, you know, when I first started collecting, I felt like I could, you know, now I couldn't go back and collect like golden age books and things like that. But there wasn't so much that I didn't feel like, like one day I could actually own, 
you know, Batman and detective from this point to this point. Well, there's no, I'm just not going to at this point, you know, I would have to put a whole lot of effort into it and I'm just not going to. And I, I think I finally gotten over that hump. I think that's where I'm at. Right. All right, Dan, hope you, hope that gave you some answer to your question. Uh, Michael Bailey from the mostly but not always overlooked Dark Knight podcast said, I realized while listening to this that I have never read the second story you talked about, that's the Paint a Picture of Peril one, despite owning several ways to do so. I feel like I let both of you down, the listening audience down, and more importantly, I let myself down. I'll have an explanation on your desk by 8 a.m. on Monday. Thanks for telling me to be easier on myself. Well, thanks, Chris. Ryan apparently had other opinions. <laughs> hey, it could be worse. You could have David A. Scudieres after you. I, so <laughs> he, he knew ex- he knew exactly what my reaction would be. How dare you, Michael? <laughs> you have a Batman podcast. <laughs> you have two Batman podcasts. Not anymore. You need to resign in shame. Turn over all of your Batman podcasts. Quit doing Superman podcasts. Go back to school. <laughs> Give us back those Starlin issues you took. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Tim Price, uh, the uh, once possessed by the uh, spirit of Mephisto, wrote in to say, these issues were pretty great. I hadn't read the second one before. There's another one. So that was fun. Again, I'm reminded how much I dig the concept of Bruce Wayne living in the city rather than the mansion. Thanks for the excuse to dive into this era. Well, you're welcome. Then you'll have plenty more excuses to dive into this era. (laughs) Uh, that used to be one of those things. I was all like, "No, of course, Bruce lives in Wayne Manor, way out in the country, overlooking the sea, or something like that." It's it's now he has to live in that gothic mansion. And the more of these that I'm reading, for either for the first time or revisiting, I'm like, "Yeah, put him in a penthouse in the city. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter." <laughs> yeah. Uh, both Brian Linton and Gothos Mansion chimed in about the Muertos using falcons to kill Batman in Secret of the Waiting Graves. This was. The line that tripped me up when uh, the, the woman is like, you know, we'll use a falcon to kill Batman. That'll be a very fitting death. I'm like, what, what is fitting about that? Like, what, like, is that irony? I don't think you understand what that means. So, uh, so both Brian Linton and Gothos Mansion mentioned that. And Gothos actually said, trivia that no one is interested in. Falcons eat bats. I figure falcons were used since they can be trained and used for falconry. I don't know if hawks can be trained, but eagles can, because Auburn University has some eagles from their upper from their raptor center that circle the stadium and land on the field before football games. It is an amazing sight to see. Falcons, hawks, and eagles have been known to attack and kill small dogs. While I love animals, I don't have a lot of sympathy for hawks or falcons. A hawk once sat on my fence for hours waiting to see if I would bring my small dog back out. Plus, I have a low opinion of my alma mater, and they are the falcons. In Batman's defense, in one of the Rachel Ghoul stories, Talia was going to shoot a watchdog, another reason I'm on Team Catwoman, and Batman produced a gadget to distract it so he didn't have to kill it. Yeah, but I think Batman also killed like a panther or a tiger or something in one of those racial ghost stories. Oh, yeah, he definitely yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Gothos Mansion talked about the two stories, and at the end of his comment, he shared some of his favorite Batman and Detective logos, um, and which go- went to the other thing that we were talking about, our favorite logos. And I definitely think that we should do our favorite logos, uh, and I liked your suggestion that we do as a video for the YouTube channel. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, we definitely need to do that. Well, you know, 
going back to uh, Batman, why Batman didn't want Talia to shoot that dog. Batman's a dog person. He had Ace. Oh, yeah, right? he had Ace, yeah. Yeah, so Batman, and, and on Batman Beyond, he has Ace. So there you go. We tied it all back together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Captain Entropy wrote in to say, Adams and O'Neill's Batman definitely qualify as one of my versions of Batman, although I'm not saying any interpretations are invalid. DCAU, Englehart and Rogers, a lot of Dixon and Minch, and even Grant Morrison's version, especially in the JLA, are also favorites. Morrison overemphasizes the preparedness angle, and his Batmillas could go so dark that it impeded my enjoyment of the story, but I like the other creators on that list. They all got the personality right. Driven, but not psychotic. He can have somewhat normal relationships and crack a joke once in a while. I would even include the Demetrius straight man Batman in JLI as a favorite interpretation. This Batman also makes mistakes and can be outclassed in some fields. Chris, this reminds me of the Hero Points profile of Batman you did with Siskoid. I thought y'all's estimates of his abilities were low in a couple areas, but too high for Batman to maintain effectively in a great many others. There's a tremendous power in being merely competent in a broad range of things and expert in one or three. Army Special Forces teams are a great example of this. I'm comfortable with Batman being the world's greatest detective, second greatest escape artist among the top 10 or 20 fighters, and somewhere between highly competent and merely proficient on a great many other things. He doesn't have to be the world's best toxicologist, for example, when merely having journeyman-level knowledge of toxicology and a true expert in his contacts list makes him more effective in this area than most of the real crime fighters on the planet. Those assets, plus his money, preparedness, and ability to strategize, I can't say strategize, and ability to strategize make him a viable threat to almost any villain. Uh, yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Batman. You know, maybe we were still still swinging into sliding into Bat God too much. I I'll give you that one, Captain. There. He also said, "I enjoyed the judo breakfall Batman demonstrated in the second story. That's one of several that we learned in my first college judo lesson, and then practice in every lesson thereafter." They ought to teach those in kindergarten. They're pretty easy, and knowing how to distribute the impact of a fall across your body is useful, even if you never get in a fight or never get in an elaborate, single-purpose, inexplicably prepared beforehand death trap, as in this case. <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, maybe we should all, you know, judo in kindergarten. I like that one. <laughs> I was going to say, I've got a kid who's going to be starting preschool in a couple months. i got to see. It's like, now, at what point do we begin the break-fall lessons in the judo course? So. <laughs> um, both Charlie Niemeyer and Ward Hill Terry volunteered their services. Chris and Martin ever needed help with the Kurt Swan podcast? Wow, we're gonna have the, it's gonna have the Legion of Kurt Swan podcasters before we're done. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Um, Terry also said, from a design point of view, I understand your gripes about the covers of this period, but I freaking love them. Part of it is the allure, as well as nostalgia. These are comics from just before my time. Comics that have mostly always been out of my price range. I love how bold the logos are, proudly boasting not only the title, but the characters within. In my collecting days, Batgirl was appearing regularly in Batman Family, but she wasn't then able to boast about being featured so prominently in the logo. Same with Robin. I would look at those covers in the 30s to the 70s book and just want those comics. Yeah, the artwork may have suffered for the space, but those covers made me want to buy those comics. I'm sorry. I just, I, I, it's the graphic designer in me that that logo because they took a previous Batman logo and just kind of uh, just threw. I think it's the lopsided text too. That's what really throws me off. I think if the text was different, I, it wouldn't bother me nearly as bad. And 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 having the figures like floating around it just 
sorry, I just can't. I can't. <laughs> I have a ton of those books. I love those comics, but I've always thought that that particular logo was kind of hideous. But yeah. that's me. Martin Gray is going to have another comment about some of the uh, the logos, but uh, he said, like others, I read Secret of the Waiting Graves in Batman from the 30s to the 70s and really enjoyed it. The moodiness of the piece was wonderful, and I loved Bruce Wayne, International Man of Mystery. He looked ridiculously sexy in his Mexican dinner suit. The recoloring is a crime against art. The original colors laid down replaced by soulless, graduated tints and muted tones. It really dials down the drama. Can you imagine being able to live forever but being banned from extreme excitement for fear of crumbling to dust? He's part of the cover furniture, but it's a good job Dick wasn't in this story or the Mortos would be after a foursome. It's so obvious they wanted to add spice to their eternal relationship by bringing Batman into things. Boy, Martin is bringing a lot of sexual overtones into this story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't read that, but okay. <laughs> I mean, hey, hey, he would not be the first person to appear to accuse Batman of being a kinky character. So, uh, That's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, Martin said, I love the cover logo with Batman and Batgirl figures. They're telling you that this 15-cent book is just packed. The logo treatment on Batman 234, on the other hand, that's the one that we did two episodes ago as part of our crossover. That's the one with Two-Face. He said, that cover, that logo is hideous to my eyes, with all of the bits of type in the extended bat shape. It's too commercial. Keep the price and blurb and numbers out of the bat and have the bat neatly wrap the names of the heroes. Yeah, I got to disagree with you there, Martin. But I mean, I, you, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, and you also know a thing or two about putting a book together. So uh, <laughs> I can't really argue with that. It's just you know different strokes for different folks. I, I like that treatment better, but eh, we all can all agree the comics are good underneath, and the covers are good underneath, right? So <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, listeners, hope you enjoyed this uh, this special Sunday edition. Hope you. Uh, enjoyed our our many many thoughts both on Denny O'Neill and uh, the Michael Keaton of it all um, I'm sure you've got your thoughts of your own so please share them in the comments section on the website uh, we should be going back to releasing Nightcast on the first Friday of the month so when we get to August uh, we should go back to the next Inglehart and Rogers issues uh, which are the, the Deadshot and Penguin stories from that saga so Ooh, can't go wrong there. No, not at all. Looking forward to that one. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. 
You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. <laughs>